Hello, welcome to FiresideFileMaker.com, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad. Hello, I'm Michael Rashad, and welcome to Fireside FileMaker. And my name is John Mark Osborne, and we have Richard Carlton from Richard Carlton Consulting on the show today to talk about the marketplace for Claris, the futures, the direction, his perspective. I've known Richard for, it seems like, a couple decades now. I remember way back in the day, sitting with him at Business Alliance meetings at the developer conference in Macworld. And what I like about Richard is very straightforward. He's outspoken. That's what we love about him. That's why we've invited him onto the show so he can talk about his viewpoint, his bird's eye view of the FileMaker market. But despite having known Richard for so long, I think Mark LaRochelle knows him better. So I'm going to hand the reins over to him so he can direct this interview and, and uh, get some good information from him. Uh, thanks, John. This is Mark from Productive Computing. And yeah, I'm really excited to have Richard here as a guest. Uh, Richard and I don't go way, way back, but we go back, uh, I don't know, several years, Richard, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of years we've been talking on and off about uh, lots of topics. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we've had some nice conversations on the phone and I've really appreciated it. So I'm actually excited to have him here on the show. But when I think of Richard, I think of, and I think of his company, right now Richard is on fire in terms of absolute market domination in terms of his passion for all things FileMaker platform, Claris. Um, and he's going to tell us about that in this podcast, but he, he does live streaming often, if not every day or every business day. He's got his key employees helping out with the content. He interviews people. He talks about simple concepts as well as difficult concepts. The guy has more passion and more energy than just about anyone I know in the industry. So I'm always impressed when I think about Richard and his company. And I just get along great with him and have the utmost respect. So with that said, I think we'll just go down the list of questions. And Richard, maybe you want to just say hi, tell us a little bit about your company, and perhaps start with how long you've been working with FileMaker and kind of paint that picture for us so we get context as to really where it all began. Sure, yeah. I've been in the FileMaker business, per se, I guess, since uh, May of 1990. So that's coming up on 31 years this year. And it's uh, long enough that I'm wondering how I retire, right? So, uh, but uh uh, we're we're really busy here. We uh, we do a lot of video training, a lot of video production, and every year it seems like I take on more of that, uh, not less of it, which is kind of a sign of a mental disease because it's uh, uh, doing training and making it work is really hard, uh, really really hard. And I'm sure John Mark can talk about that. But uh, been in the business a long time, interacted with many generations of Claris slash FileMaker slash Claris employees, and uh, and it's just interesting. And of course, every year it gets better. The platform gets better. Um, and so there's always something new to talk about. So you started way back. Were you an in-house developer? I mean, tell us a little bit about your first experience with FileMaker itself. Well, like a lot of uh, FileMaker developers, you, you you stumble into it by total accident. So um, I was a uh, sophomore in college at UC Davis on engineering degree, right? And uh, what ended up happening is some family friends said, hey, we got this FileMaker Pro thing. It was 1.0 at the time. And uh, we need you to like help us make it work. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll help you make it work. And then they paid me and I'm like, wow, I can get paid for like doing software stuff, right? And so like, that's such a common story. Uh, I would say at least half the people in the FileMaker community stumble into it by accident that way. And at the time then, uh, Claris 
was still at that point was Claris. Um, Laura Valencia was the head of the program there for developer outreach. And they were really, they had some serious religion about growing the developer community. And they realized that A, I was a college student and B, that college students don't have any money. And they actively went out and said, here's FileMaker, here's a free copy of it. And if you give us a couple hundred bucks, we'll even put you in the CSA program, right? Because they didn't have anyone anywhere near Sacramento at the time, right? Mm. It was, it was a, and they were trying to grow the program. So, um, and so what they did is they, they, throwing free software at people who are really motivated individuals has a very positive uh, influence as a general rule, something I think that's been forgotten over the years. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's how it all started. Nice. Nice. And I know one of your favorite statements is uh, there's nothing like the smell of free software in the morning. Yeah, that was something I said when we learned when I was a freshman in, in college. It was funny. I, I, we had, uh, I did a survey the other day because we're doing these daily live streams and we have a bunch of younger people in the live stream. And I asked them, I said, no one's in trouble. I'm not the FileMaker licensed police. I want you to each text me and tell me how you got FileMaker. Every one of them stole it. Not one of them had bought the software and that's because college students are broke and they don't have any uh, money and they're saving money for pizza and for gas for the car and whatever else. Right. So beer, beer. Yeah, that too. Right. Um, It's uh, and so anyway, so it's interesting. So I I was like, you know, some things change, some things never change. And uh, and if you want to bring people into the family community and they're at the college age, uh, you can't expect them to write a check for that. It's just not going to happen. Right. And then what, what made you decide to take this from enjoying the software and actually getting paid for it to like starting Richard Carlton Consulting? I mean, tell us a little bit about those early days. Uh, well, the early days were me working um, and I had, to, I had to balance my grade point average uh, with uh, the FileMaker work I was doing. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up getting uh, some Ds and I knew that when I started getting Ds on exams, I knew that I was doing too much FileMaker and not enough uh, not enough a develop or not a studying. Right. And so what ended up happening is I eventually got my degree, got out. And then I remember the first year I made $10,000 and my, I was married to my wife who was a biological scientist at Bear Pharmaceutical. And she was the one actually bringing in the money, but mm-hmm. we were thinking like, Hey, this might, you know, might be a career, might be interesting. Um, and so the next year I made, I remember $33,000. Right. Wow. And I'm like, okay, we're moving up in the world. And of course this is 1994 money. Right. So it goes a little farther than would it be like 50,000 today, I guess. So, um, and so then, so then it was like, oh, here it goes. And then, but then I realized, oh, I don't have, I can't, I can't do all the work. So let me go back to UC Davis and find a couple people or just one person to help me. And then that's how it all kind of cartwheels. Right. So then you're like, oh, I should be legal. I should have a business license. And, and then eventually after a bunch more years, you're like, oh, I I can't have a business license. I need a a corporation. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, So that's the sequence of events for that. So it's uh, it's interesting. It uh, started at the beginning in, in 90 and then kind of cartwheeled its way forward until we had the first corporation in 99, right? So Nice. And you've been growing ever since. And now you have multiple locations. And about how many people on staff? I honestly don't know. Um, I, I, uh, I tend to scare the new hires. And so my managers actually hire them without me actually going through and talking to them because I'm so driven and so focused that when you bring new people in the room, they're like, ah, I can't work for Richard. He's too high strung. Right. So they're like, uh, so yeah, so we hired three in the last three or four months. Um, and, uh, so I would say between 30 and 35, probably closer to 35. Nice. So, hey, 
do you remember your first employee when you hired him? How, you know, the whole experience, I, I imagine it was probably scary. Yeah, the first employee was Eric Mitchell, who was a firefighter at uh, at UC Davis. And, and I had had some firefighting experience. And so I hired him and he came in and worked for me part time. And, uh, you know, you, the, the thing is, I wasn't scary. It wasn't scary at the time because I didn't know enough to be scared. Right. So you have to actually have some sort of wisdom and knowledge to be scared that you're about to do something really stupid. And of course, I was so green. I mean, no one in my business um, had done it was a business person. There were no business people in my family, people that you like, you know, the son learns from the dad. and The dad's a big CEO and they kind of moves up. Um, and uh, all my family are civil servants. Right. They're firefighters they're law enforcement. They 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 do public safety stuff. And so for me to be in business is still this weird thing they want to hear about at Christmas. Like, hey, what'd you do? And how's it going? And what do you think about the election? And how will that affect your business? Right. I mean, I get all these questions. So. Yeah, exactly. So with the multiple locations, is that is that mostly for the purposes of like accommodating people in the local region? Or is there a big a bigger master plan for that? Well, the plan keeps changing, right? But originally, I had some very valuable people that really decided they really wanted to move to Texas. And so then we so then we put an office in, well, first we had an office in Santa Clara. Uh, so I'm, head, I'm kind of headquartered where my home office is in Fairfield. But and then we had a big office in Santa Clara because we had a bunch of college students that we had hired to be junior, you know, junior kind of detectives, I guess, per se. And so we had office space there. And so the offices kind of cropped up where people wanted to move. The problem was, is that by human nature, people tend to be fairly dynamic and I don't want to say flighty, but a little flighty. And so what it happens is we put an office in Texas. I have people move there. Then they all leave Texas and I'm still stuck with an office in Texas. So I have an office in Texas that's got room for five or six people and there's one person in there. Right. So it's, 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 it's stupid. So they're all over the place. Right. And, and you, I told them, I, then, so then, then I get this call from one of them. He goes, Hey, and I'm going to move to, and I'm not going to say his name, uh, but he's going to move to Portland. Right. And he goes, Oh, uh, and it'd be really great if the boss loved me enough to get me an office here. And I'm, I'm listening, I'm, I'm still paying for the office in Texas you had. Right. So, uh, so suddenly what goes from FileMaker fun comes, uh, becomes HR and, you know, management kind of challenges, I guess. So Richard, why aren't you um, just, why the need for office space since everybody can work remotely so easily now? Because when I started, there was no working from home and remotely, right? When I started, uh, the internet was in its infancy. We were just starting to deal with ISDN connections and T1s in 96. YouTube didn't even come out until 2005. And we were doing a lot of remote connection stuff uh, in 98 and 99. And the FileMaker performance of FileMaker 6 at that time was so bad that only one person could really be working on FileMaker across the ISDN connection. And for those of you who don't know what that means, that's, tw uh, I think, a maximum about 15K bytes per second, I think is what that tops out at, something around there. It's not very much. 20, 15, 20, 30, it was pretty low. And no, so- I, re I remember back when, uh, when I had a modem, because <laughs> I yeah. remember 33.6, we always looked at ISDN, we're like, whoa. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, yeah, and then it was the bomb. So, yeah, yeah. So there was no really, there was no reliable voice streaming. I mean, you were, they were starting to play with it a little bit, but it kind of was, I mean, every, everyone is, you know, the, it's like kids who grow up these days won't understand what the world is like without an internet, you know, unless an asteroid falls on the, the data center somewhere. And, uh, 
And so it's it's a different world. And so nowadays things have changed um, and you can do this stuff more remotely. But but and I'll segue into this and in that you run into people um, and I have some family members who are like this. They have jobs in, in civil service. And when they actually got sent home, they couldn't bring themselves to actually do their job. They, I got in trouble, I'm pretty sure. So what ended up happening is that you have people who must be in an office environment so they turn their brains on, they work because they don't have enough self-control to work in a home environment. And this is a known commodity. Every CEO knows this or manager knows this. And so you try to find the people who can handle that. The ones who can't flounder, uh, they very much flounder and they know who they are. They know they're floundering. And uh, I, I think the sooner you can get those people back into an office so they can be productive, the better it will be for them. Right. So. Yeah, speaking of that, we have actually two employees that raised their hand and said, please let us come back to the office because I'm not getting anything done at home. Yes. I couldn't believe it, but that happened. No, absolutely. And because we've been experimenting with this for, well, since, you know, 96. And so the, the problem is, is that you got people who they really work well in a team environment. You know, the, the best, the staff, the happiest staff I have are the ones who will spend two days in the office and they work three days at home and they can work in either location. And when they get in the office, they're, they're like, Hey, have you seen this and do this? And can you check this out? And, and the FaceTime and the interaction, although, you know, social distancing, you know, spring bleach on each other, whatever they're doing. Um, you know, that, that complicates it, but there's this, this synergy. It's like a DevCon kind of synergy when people meet face-to-face. -face. It enhances the data transfer between the two people. Um, otherwise, they're on Slack, which is our preferred tool. And, they're, and they're, we have a kind of a general area where people post, hey, this is hot tip. Well, getting the hot tip off of Slack and reading about it is different than having some person run up to your desk going, hey, this is the coolest stuff I've ever seen. Right? And then, so, it's yeah. different. Big difference, especially when you consider whiteboard, body language, all that stuff. Mm. It, it really does make a difference being in person. Yep. But uh, yeah, today it's a little harder to do that. And, you know, we've survived. Our, our, our philosophy has always been about, you know, here's our headquarters, come to work at the office, work as a team, learn from each other. And it's great when you train because you can look over someone's shoulder and say, oh, did you realize you were doing this? You, sometimes you can only see that stuff in person. That's correct. You know, there's a Claris, and because we've been around so long and interact with us so long, there's been management teams down there that were very anti work from home, like militant, like they fired people because they would refuse to do it. And so now this has been forced upon everyone. And so when this thing kind of tapers off, uh, they're, I can see some companies like Apple saying, hey, you got to come back to work. And if they don't, what are you going to do? Right. I don't want to be the, have to be that in their position. Right. That's kind of a tough one. So. Well, yeah. didn't uh, Twitter say we're all going to be remote from now on? Or I, I forget which company it was. There was some company announced that said, hey, we've had to send everybody home, but we're going to stay this way. Well, and then what happens along the way is that those people will end up uh, re re releasing, firing, or otherwise removing employees who cannot function that way. So then what happens is that you have this, this workforce of, of people who would otherwise be highly productive, award-winning staff, but they're at home and they can't manage that on their own because they there's not everyone can do work at home and be self-motivated. So I guess that's, you know, so what are you going to do when those people can't work? I mean, no, I couldn't agree with you more. When you, when you get a, a large business like yours, you become a manager and you have to figure people out who can work from home and who can't. But there's a lot of aspects of management that I've stayed away from because I just don't want to manage people. <laughs> so. I, I don't blame you. There's, there's very, there's people who in my organization, they're like, Oh, I want to be Richard. I want to, you know, I at the big, you know, office and a title and stuff. And then, and then they see what I do and they're like, hell no, <laughs> no way. I don't want to be anywhere near that. Right. Because 
the the farther I go along in my FileMaker career, the harder it is for me to pass a certification test, right? Because I code less and less and less and less, right? So if I spend two hours a week developing, that was a good week for me. Yeah. Do you miss that? Oh, yeah. Sometimes when the, there's cool stuff, when there's some sort of insane bug that everyone hates and I'm really happy I'm not dealing with it, but I do miss it. And it makes it, like I said, I still take and pass the certification test, um, you know, and that's a lot of, I, I remember Claris whining at some of the other platinum CEOs, w- pushing them to get certified because they expected them to be able to pass it. And some of these people are like, hey, I'm a management now. I don't have to do that. <laughs> so yeah. I, I still do it because you have, you can't push a string. A leadership function, you got to pull the string. And so you have to go, if I'm going to talk about training and say I'm an expert, I can not, not be certified. I don't know if that makes sense. But yeah. I, I have the same exact philosophy, Richard. Yeah. Yeah. And have the same problems with less and less. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. Um, now with, with the industries that you work for, for the, is there a particular industry or you guys pretty much play the field? Now, that was a good question. One of my family members asked me that question. And so back in 99, um, and it's relevant here, or in 2001, there was 9-11. It really destroyed the economy in the United States for a period of time and parts of the economy, kind of like very similar to what's going on right now. Travel, restaurants, uh, trade shows uh, were all basically destroyed overnight. And it's because people were afraid to fly because they thought terrorists would blow up their plane, which in some cases was a true statement. And so we we went from 30 people to four people uh, on 9-12, the day after 9-11. And I've had to rebuild the company since then. And I made the mistake of being tied to a vertical market. And so uh, at the time, we were tied into trade shows and event planning and things like that. Pretty lucrative areas, except once again, right now, done. They're they're, they're mm. toast. And so we uh, rebuilt the company. We are totally horizontal. If I see a trend where people were starting to get sucked into a specific vertical, I would actively work to, and it's hard to say no to like here, take my money. But, uh, but I work really hard to make sure we're horizontal. So there's there, like, we had like when, when the COVID thing went down, the restaurant business took a dump, et cetera. And, uh, and so we had, you know, we have 500, you know, contracts that are running or whatever, how many contracts we have uh, running. And, you know, 5% of those or 8% of them say, oh, we're out of business. Poof, we can't continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for us, it's a an 8% drop off, but that's not like going, I mean, I didn't have to lay anyone off. Actually, I think I laid off two juniors uh, temporarily um, and then we brought back one and the other ones wanted to be a nurse or something. So change careers. So anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and then since that time we've been growing again. So if you're horizontal, you're less, uh, it's like, if you have a stock portfolio, you don't just buy Apple. And if Apple has a bad quarter, you lose your money. You kind of buy these uh, diamonds or spiders or these, uh, these uh, equities that are horizontal, they're spread across the market. So you own the whole market. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Productive computing is horizontal now, but we are actually working more and more towards getting you know, various verticals, because I, I like the appeal of having a centralized uh, marketing avenue to, you know, to channel something and to build something in a particular industry. But uh, I concur when COVID hit, you know, basically right. a, a handful of customers called and said, well, we're in the meeting planning space. I've got nothing. Right. So that oh, was yeah. the end of that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in a vertical, like, for example, in, 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 in 2001, I had 25 staff committed to event planning. And and then and that next day they were all all their contracts were canceled. Didn't matter if there was a liquidated damages clause or something like that in there. I mean, who's going to go to court and fight that? Um, 
when, right. you know, planes are flying out of the sky and, you know, the Pentagon's blown up and yeah, I mean, it got kind of crazy. So yeah. And again, COVID's different, but it's actually, there's a lot of similarities there. A lot of similarities. So. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, as you look at um, your portfolio of assets on the internet, we are um, dumbfounded, surprised, and excited to talk about just how many domains uh, point to Richard Carlton Consulting. I mean, everything from fmgallery.net, fmtraining.tv is a big one, fmstartingpoint.com, rcconsulting.com, fmcoaches.com, trifilemaker.com. So you own a lot of domains, and I think there's a specific strategy with that. Maybe you could talk about that? Well, the domains are, I don't know, it's like a... <laughs> it's like, it's, it's like a, it's a, it's a, it's an indicator of an underlying operation that's going on. Right. That's just the, the, the public, public component that you see. Right. So FM gallery is a kind of a, a vertical market gallery solution. Uh, one of my engineers put together the fact that I own it, probably he should probably own it. That's Nick Hunter. Who's our lean design guy. We could talk about that in a little bit, but, um, FM training. So we originally had filemakerlearning.com, which I thought was, or learning filemaker, whatever it was. Um, and the problem is that when you put the word filemaker in the domain, you're hoping that Claris behaves itself and plays nice and doesn't send you a cease and desist. And they can and will do that depending upon how you use their name or word in a domain. And so we decided that that it was the value of our training operation was such that we didn't want to be held hostage uh, by having it learning FileMaker, FileMaker Learning, whatever it was. It's still there. Um, and it just forwards to fmtraining.tv. And so that's, the, that's our training operation. It's where we have basically largely three components that are in operation. There's the uh, what Claris likes to call the on-demand videos are basically kind of like pre-recorded videos, but we animate them. They're highly animated. They're actually expensive to produce. People can buy the course there or the bundle of courses uh, there. And um, and then there's also a, a, just a, a live button on that spot. On the, I mean, you go to the website, there's like get the on-demand or the, the, the bundles of training. And then there's a live, which shows you the upcoming schedule for the next six days because we broadcast Monday through Friday every day at one o'clock. So um, as a result of that, um, we put the schedule in there so people can see what's coming up. We have, uh, there's a lot of heavy hitters in the community. Um, you know, I think of like the Alexi Folgers and things like that. Pretty, they, you know, they don't really need to learn. There's not too much I have to teach them, but every once in a while, we'll, we will be putting together some content like we did a, a enterprise grade replicated five-day event. And we did it with Jesse Barnum. And we took uh, Jesse's product and we repl we put server replication every five five different uh, continents, including Mumbai, India. We were there and doing uh, server replication. We had everyone show up for that, and so um, so we we were always interested in basic training, but also then pushing the platform, uh, you know, way out there. You know, for example, Claris. Uh, when the management team kind of took over about two years ago, they were like, Hey, we're going to be enterprise. And you start seeing these references on, you know, NBC and CNN and, and it's like, and then Claris is Apple's enterprise department. I'm like, okay, so they're enterprise now. Okay. We'll help with that. <laughs> and I called Jesse. Hey, Jesse, let's uh, do your mirror sync thing and do uh, five different versions across five different continents. And he goes, Oh, we've never done it that big before. And I said, well, we're going to do it on live TV. So let's get, let's get going here. So, and people showed up. It was fun. Um, but yeah, it's uh, from basic training to advanced training, um, and that's kind of where that's at. So, and of course, I, I can already feel Mark, John Mark's questions about you know other broadcast mechanisms. So I don't know which if you guys want to jump to that or, <laughs> uh, but you know how you publish video, right? I mean that's another 
topic you could spend an hour talking about. Oh, easily, yeah. Yeah, I think we'll get to the video in a, in a little bit because um, I think that's going to have some other uh, branches to it. But the now you also have FM Starting Point, which is a solution, a free solution you've had for years and years and years. Oh, yeah, and we're continuing to invest in that. Uh, so FM Starting Point is essentially, for all practical purposes, the de facto free CRM standard that's in the FileMaker community. A um, couple other companies decided they would make one too. You guys have a core product, which is a good product, a different product, but a similar product, but that's a paid product, I think, for the most part. So this is kind of the free one, right? And it doesn't do quite as much as core does um, or paid necessarily CRM, but it's it's been growing. In fact, the thing came about because we were hired to do the FileMaker Star Solutions in 2010, or for FileMaker, not 2010, uh, for the FileMaker 10 release. And they kept having us do like, here's contacts, and here's a separate invoicing file, and here's a separate project file. And they had it like 30, 20, 30, whatever starter solutions. And we said, hey, we should put all these together. And they said, no. And I looked at my staff and said, well, we should just do this anyway, right? <laughs> and uh, and so we, we bolted all these things together. And then we went back to Claris literally. And we said, hey, you guys should just give this away. And they're like, uh, okay, we can give it away, but you, but you can't have your name on it anywhere. I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm stupid, but not that stupid, right? So, um, you know, so we offered it to them. They didn't want it. So we've been kind of releasing it ever since and updating it. And the idea behind it was a CRM that a, it starts your project. You can do projects on it, um, build your CRM or build whatever you want to build on it. Uh, it's easier to, to rip things out of a solution than to build from scratch is kind of the idea. So if you don't need this module, either hide it. Like if you don't want projects module, either hide it or rip it out. You don't have to, you know, but if you're missing it, it's easier just to rip the things out than you than to build them from scratch. And it's a training tool. And, and in fact, to such a degree um, that we actually we're kind of forking the product. Um, and so what we've got that's just about done any day is the starting point light. And what we've done is we've simplified it. Instead of adding, keeping adding, and making it more complex, we simplified it purely for people who need a very basic CRM and or it's our default training version, right? Like for example, when you do primary keys in a FileMaker file, there's a, a debate on the community. Well, you can use UUID and it's so much greater, except for training. If you try to train people on that, their little brains explode. So for training, you want a serial number. Like this is record one. That's going to be record two. This is record three. Now, how does record two here and record two over here, how do they relationally connect, for example, right? So UUID is a string of text that's randomized and, and it's hard for people to mentally wrap their brains around that. And so, uh, yeah, he totally gets it, right? And so the problem is the best training uh, demo file is not necessarily the best build your CRM file, right? And so we actually forked it and it's just about done. We'll get that out the door. And that way people can decide whether they're training and they want something really, really basic or they want something that's ready to do sync with, you know, synchronization and whatever else, right? So. So actually what I'm doing right now, because I'm quiet, is I'm Googling UUID. I wasn't really familiar with it. I've never heard about it before. <laughs> is that, are you being serious? No, I got a dry sense of humor. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. So it's a random, it generates a random, like a random number, a random piece of text. And it's, it, the, th the problem I always had with UUID is because, um, 
computers fundamentally have a problem being random is that I'm always worried I'll get a duplicate, right? So it's a, it's a randomized generator, right? And the, the chance of running into the same number twice, is like one in 13 billion or whatever it is. Um, but it's a possibility, right? So I, now Richard, would you guys have a, a, some type of, you know, you have to use UIDs or do you care? Is, is there some kind of, you know, something that, that you've got a, I'm trying to think of the word and I've got a brain fart right now, but uh, you know, a policy in your company where you, you're supposed to use UIDs and not serial numbers, or I'm just curious on your feelings on that. Uh, I don't, I don't, I, I, when the engineers, so it's a broader question, like how do you dictate policy on coding policy? Right. And so let me just speak to that more generically. Um, the junior staff don't know enough. So we kind of dictate kind of how they do things, but they start to see that with the senior engineers that we have, um, that I don't tell the senior engineers what to do, right? I, in terms of their coding, if they need, if it's like, cause a lot of the engineers are doing training, right? As part of their development, their training and development, they might use serial numbers because they have a training need and they realize that they're going to have to explain relationships. And if you can just explain relationships with a regular serial number and not a UID, that makes the conversation so much easier for the person to grasp, the, the student to grasp. So, I leave it up to the senior engineers. I think most of all my senior staff who are established use UUIDs. Um, but just because I spend so much time in the training world, I have to, um, you know, I think about that end of it too, right? So, because the bottom line is there was a big push to take starting point to UUID. So it, it's, it, it, it solves some importing issues. It fixes some, um, it, it fixes uh, easy uh, adoption of synchronization, offline synchronization with third-party products. You have to use UUID. It just sucks for training. And so that's why we have starting point lights, why we did that. But I generally don't put a gun to people's head and say, you have to code a certain way. But they have to, you know, commenting scripts when they're and like, well, how do I comment? Well, find a template you like and just comment it, right? But, but, but then I have, but because the challenge is not getting engineers to put the comments just the way you want them. The challenge is to get the engineers to put the comments at all, right? Like, oh, well, I was just trying to get it to work. And then I barely made the deadline. And then I forgot to do the comments. And so, oh, shoot, sorry. No one can read what my code is. So that's my greater concern. I have to say here that since FileMaker automatically generates the five key fields, including the primary key field, why would you ever not use anything? Why do you need to explain it to people? I mean, it's a it's a unique identifier, and that's it. That's it. Because when you're training people and you show a screen with multiple windows on it, and you're trying to show how this relationship connects this relationship, people can't see the connection because they can't to look at a four digit or three digit serial number. It says, this is record 100. Oh, it matches record 100 over here, as opposed to record 8131412188855 capital M little Z RRR5. And if you have a list of that stuff, people's heads explode. That's a training function. And so I understand what you're saying, but that's a training function. And I don't want to have to try to explain relationships and also UUIDs at the same time, right? No, that's the problem. That's the problem. That's exactly the problem, right? And so, it's, so it's not, there's not really one that's right and one that's wrong. It's just that you have to use the right one for the, for the scenario. Yeah, I think I, I totally understand that. Yeah, people have to see the match immediately in order to appreciate it. Yeah, they have to visually see the match and they won't see it. And that's the rub. And so, um, I mean, unless maybe Michael's like got the super high IQ of, you know, two or three hundred in which he can see it and then in its head it magically works. But normal humans can't 
see a screen of just like an Excel spreadsheet of, of, of random stuff like that and then derive the, the matches from one column to the column on two sides of the screen. It's just, it's really hard. It's, so. it's in interesting you say that because I've never had an IQ that low in my entire life. But, <laughs> <laughs> but to me, it's so, it's seriously, it's just so obvious that I'm just baffled that people don't get it. Well, uh, I spent a lot of time explaining what the hell a relationship is. So that's that's I, I, I spend time there. And then I also spend time explaining curl options to people. So there's your two two sides of the extreme. Right. So, yeah, not not to be contrary to Michael, but I, I agree with you, Richard. It, it, you made a completely valid point about training. And and, and I love that you made that point because it, it's it helps everybody to understand FileMaker better. Um, because uh, often what you have to do is you have to teach people to understand FileMaker better. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. So uh, the reality of this is I spend so much time talking to people and I love doing tech support uh, at my own company and reading the questions. And then when the live stream comes up, I take, I mean, nothing would be more useful for management at Claris is to sit and do tech support and talk to the customers and find out what's, what is hanging up the basic people, right? They would never do that, but um, I ensure that all my senior managers spend a little time doing tech support, not with their customers, but just like generic questions. Like people are like, ah, oh, I don't understand the the one. They, they're trying to install FileMaker and they cannot figure out the license certificate file, right? Which is not that hard, but it's something that comes up, right? Is there an easy fix for that? Not really, but it's it's you have to you need to understand where all the friction points are for your product, and um, and so with training. You know, you start to identify beginning, intermediate, advanced, and I we can dive into that a little bit at some point because that that cross. I mean, I'm in the middle of updating our book, and we're covering all these topics right now in the book. But uh, it's um, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts here. So, Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's something that you will forget over the years. So it's something to go back and refresh. And so I, I, in an ideal world, you'd have each of your senior managers do an hour or two hours of tech support, like on a Friday morning or afternoon or something or over lunch or something, because then they're reminded of what it's like and they remember that and they're interfacing with the customers that are paying them, right? It's so important, right? It's not just that you have managers who have used the product, right? It was like the uh, Samsung vice president was running around tweeting everyone how great his products were. And at the bottom of his tweets or whatever messages said, oh, sent from an iPhone, right? I mean, that's the, you know, and, 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 and legit, a true story. And, and so you get people all the time are busy pitching, selling stuff. They don't know or understand, or maybe they understood it once upon a time, but they don't do they don't really ask the brand new people, what are you stuck? Well, guess what? With FileMaker and any relational database, one of the first things they do, they put fields on a layout, they start moving stuff around, and then they try to like figure out how to connect a contact to an invoice and it all breaks. Their little heads explode. 
And that is the first major hurdle that they go through. So, wow, this has been an interesting conversation. I'm glad we started talking about the training aspect because you guys both deal with a lot of people who are brand new to FileMaker. And, you know, I think the experienced developers that might be listening probably take for granted just how how much we've learned over the years and how what it's like to be at the beginning is not often, you know, after 20 years of this, you sometimes forget just the basics. Oh, you totally. You, you totally forget. And, and it's, you know, and sometimes it's frustrating dealing with people can't figure out a license key or a, or a file certificate. And I get that. I mean, it's not like I'm telling the managers to do the same tech support issue 20 times in a day, but like, for example, I had an engineer, uh, engineer, actually one of my, uh, one of my sales guy who got stuck and my sales guy is not really a file maker coder. Right. And he goes, Hey, so classic example, this is why I do tech support is an issue. I totally forgot about. Right. So he goes, Hey, on my laptop, if I do a find, I get six records on my desktop computer. I get one record and I go same database, same layout. He goes, yeah, boss, I'm not that stupid. Okay, but got it. Right. So, so I do a little tech support and it turns out that he is right clicked on his home computer, the one that's only getting one record. And he's showing text only in a status toolbar across the top. If you only show the text on the status toolbar across type, you don't see a found set or record control in there generally as a rule. And so, and so he could only see one record. He couldn't navigate the other records and he didn't have enough experience to understand. Once again, a basic kind of brand new FileMaker person. Ah, oh, ah, oh, you know, I can't, where'd my six records go? The, the, the FileMaker ate my data, right? There's a classic one, right? Classic thing. Dog ate my homework. FileMaker ate my data. I swear it was here. Now it's gone. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more. That's a very common thing to hear. FileMaker destroyed my data. And then you go, doot, 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 and it's there. It's just beginners, there's so much stuff going on in FileMaker. We've done it for so long. We lose sight of what it was to start with FileMaker, you know, especially now that it's so complicated. I mean, back in the FileMaker 2.0 days, it was so straightforward and easy. Um, we've built up that knowledge and it's been an easier path for us. But for a, a lot of these people who are just going to, oh, I want to do FileMaker and I can see all the cool stuff. It's it's really complicated. And and the, not to say that FileMaker is not the easiest product out there, but it's still pretty complicated to get, you know, into this product and, and do some, you know, high level, serious professional development in it. I was going to say that you might have heard this, but I, in my opinion, FileMaker's greatest strength is also its greatest weakness. And its greatest strength is it's incredibly easy to put something together, but it's also its greatest weakness because it's so easy to do it that you end up doing it completely and utterly wrong. And then what happens is FileMaker gets blamed other than just complete lack of experience and understanding what it is to build a database. Yeah. Yeah. So we've, so that once again, everything we keep saying here ties back um, to something that's in the book. It's on our training videos. We're starting, we, we're starting to actually call it, it's a, it's called the progression of learning, right? And the progression of learning looks a lot like this. The big, brand new FileMaker person gets FileMaker going and they just want it to work. They, they have, a, have numbers, they have a, a layout. It's ugly. It's black and white. It's trash. Maybe put some fluorescent colors on there. Um, but they're just trying to get it to basically work. And that is your beginner person. And then ha about halfway between beginner and this intermediate level, someone says, hey, that's really cool. Can I, can I use that too? Because you're saving some time and effort and money. And so that's it kind of in between beginner and intermediate. I'm waving my hands, but you can't see me. 
So I saw I'm used to being on video. <laughs> I'm there waving my hands at the camera and no one's watching. But uh, in between the beginning intermediate is um, the stage where, oh, I have to put a password on the file and, oh, I have to share this, right? And then right after that comes the, oh, we're going to add more features, so you're going to add more capabilities. And, and anywhere in there, if, if something goes wrong, you know, it's not it, frequently Claris or FileMaker will be blamed, right? And, and so, the, so then you get this point as you head towards being an intermediate developer where you start to see slowdowns on the internet because it was really fast and now it's slow. FileMaker must suck, right? As the, as in, in, and people have to learn that, no, you have to start to be build in performance uh, tuning and think about things like that. And, that. and then as you start to master the basic levels of performance, then you hit this intermediate stage and then you, know, you keep going from there. So it's, there's this whole progressional learning that people have to go through. Um, and uh, I see it all the time, right? So, yeah. And there's other progression paths too. There's deployment considerations and ongoing maintenance. There's security and how to handle that and authentication. And then there's the multi-user aspects of FileMaker. Like, okay, did you think about record locking when you decided to do this particular situation? And all of those. Yeah, those, those are all things that, yeah, they happen right before the intermediate stage, right? You know, I've, I've, I've got a chart on this. It's really quite good. But the whole idea is that they, they have to learn these things to get it shared, right? And, and it's this big kind of effort that goes on. And that's why there has to be this training out there. The platform is by far, listen, we wouldn't still be using it if the platform wasn't great. But being great or not, this still has sharp edges to it. And um, we have to train people not to cut their hand on the sharp edges. That's a very good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So any more? Do we want to talk any more about some of the other domains? Um, FileMakerFree.com, FileMakerPurchase.com, TryFileMaker.com. Not necessarily. Nah, no, they have different little, they're different. Uh, you know, houses of collecting things. The the donations is one that's kind of gone by the wayside. We had a donation sample file. FileMaker Free is where we frequently will park free things that people can get at uh, for the FileMaker community. It's hard to keep that up to date because we're doing all this. Basically, our focus is starting point and training. Um, and obviously, we do a lot of consulting. That's the RC, the main RCC website. But the FM train at TV and starting point are the main focal components. Uh, where all this stuff goes. So Richard, you're not just doing FileMaker. I mean, when we've talked on the phone, I've been always, always impressed because your day doesn't start at eight and end at five. Your day starts potentially earlier and goes a lot later. But even with all that hard work on the company and all the things you do, you still find time for some fun. And I, it's un, my understanding you do some RC aviation? Yeah, I've done full-scale aviation. I've done radio control aviation, which is a lot cheaper, frankly. Um, you know, I've flown the heli RC helicopter, not a drone, but an RC helicopter around the hotel buildings at various events and things like that, um, which gets everyone all excited because, you know. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been doing RC aviation for a long time. In fact, at one point we were flying for a couple manufacturers as a demo pilot. I put on the, it's like if I was a Toyota rep and I was driving a Toyota sports car, you know, and demoing it or something like that. That's, that's what I was doing for RC. I, uh, I, to the point I had to stop that because it was just taking up every waking moment on every weekend to travel and then to fly uh, at shows and to demo for people. So um, we don't do that too much anymore, but we still fly quite a bit. So it's, it's a good outlet. It's fairly technical. I like to fly, so that makes it fun. And you do it with your son? Well, Alex grew up, joined the U.S. Army, uh, got out, is going to college down in San Diego, but I was doing it with him. Yeah, absolutely. Now I, I threatened to uh, adopt a 
you know, some poor kid who needs a parent because I need someone to fly with. Right. And I, I told my son, he could come fly with me. I have to adopt some poor kid come with me. So I don't know what we'll maybe the neighbor's kid or something. I don't know. But uh, yeah, as they grow up and he does his own thing. And remember when you're in college, we're back to being broke and not having any money and trying to get through classes. Right. So he doesn't have time to spend all weekend flying. So yeah, that's that's good to have a hobby. I think I think we all need an outlet at some point or another. I, I know, especially if you own a business with a lot of employees, uh, you know, there's a lot to detox from that sometimes. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of reward that comes with owning a business, but there's also, you know, a fair amount of high pressure between yeah, customers. And, absolutely. Yeah. No, yeah. it's, and, it, and it's something you never, under, no one, well, like I said, my family's uh, civil servants, right? And, and so, uh, first responders and all that kind of stuff. So for me, it was like, oh yeah, I'm going to go do that. But then I realized, hey, I could do business, but then you see all the stress with it. And it's like, ugh. so yeah. yeah exactly. So so a lot has changed with FileMaker and Claris over the years. Um, and that is no, no truer than today. In the last, I'd say two or three years, we've seen not only the name change, but just the direction potentially change or be enhanced. The management has changed. So there's a lot going on with Claris these days. And we know you're heavily involved in all aspects of this or many aspects of it. And we just wanted to kind of get your idea, your thoughts on some of the specifics um, and what you thought about the Claris, Claris in the marketplace. And maybe I'll just kind of run down the list and you can paraphrase this as you wish, you know, talk about Claris Connect, um, their integration with third-party technology, what are your thoughts on FileMaker Server for Linux and so forth. So maybe we just start with your overall thoughts and then maybe dovetail into Claris connect and then we'll go down the list. Sure. So what I'll do, let me, let me reorder a little bit here. So let's t the FileMaker Linux is an easy one. Um, that is something that was sitting on the shelf at Claris for many, many years. Um, in fact, they had to bring back an engineer who had retired to resuscitate it back to life because <laughs> they, they got it off the shelf and no one knew what the hell it was supposed to do. So, um, Right, just to, to let people know, I think it was FileMaker six that they had. Uh, they had a Linux server, server and um, and I'm not a Linux person. I, I have Linux people that work for me. I'm not personally a Linux server, um, but they, they after that they kind of shelved it because they didn't really appreciate, or I, I don't know anyone could. Have, well, remember we're talking about the late '90s, right? So how could you see what's going to happen in 2020 from 1990, right? I mean, or '95, right? So it's 25 years in the future. What's going to happen, right? So. Um, they kind of shelved it. And then and I know along the way they'd worked on it. Right. That was the whole thing um, with the engineer they brought back. I'm uh, I'm spacing on it. John Thatcher. Right. So John Thatcher came back very limited term. Uh, you know, he was one of the early architects and he helped kind of resuscitate that, get that going. So it's a good option. If you have Matt, if you're a Mac company, use FileMaker server for Mac. If you're a Windows company, use Windows. If you have Linux capable tech support people, then use the Linux one. But the performance benefits between the Linux and the Windows one are plus or minus 10% on any given uh, test. So it's not like automatically it's faster. It's just cheaper because there's no real cost on the operating system, right? So instead of paying Microsoft for the Microsoft server, you're going to you know have a cheaper deployment with that. So that one's an easy one, I think. Yeah. It was always my thought that because FileMaker Cloud ran on AWS or runs on AWS, they needed to revamp the Linux version, which then made it a natural progression to release it as a general FileMaker server capable yeah. thing. 
I would think that's the case. The uh, interesting part was that they had to bring John Thatcher back to make it happen, and, and, and he wasn't involved. I, you know, I just don't know what happened with that. That's an interesting – I'd love to talk to them about that, but that's an inside baseball uh, kind of thing. So, But I, I consider the Linux thing a, a non-controversial topic. The developers love it. Um, the developers that can use it should use it. If you, if you don't have a Linux background, you don't have Linux people working for you, don't go use it, right, just because it's shiny, right? So – um, I think that's an easy one. Uh, the integration with third-party technologies, all these APIs and services, you know, FileMaker talking to Salesforce, talks to PayPal, talks to Slack, talks to uh, DocuSign, for example. Um, all these are huge things that have been in market now probably a solid five or six years. Uh, Claire started supporting this stuff, I think, in 2016. When did they first put the first curl stuff in? Was that 16 or 17? Mm-hmm. I think, I think it was six, 16, I think. I think it was 16, yeah. So so this has been out for a while. Uh, Claire's Connect is an interesting, um, an interesting product because the way it looks and what Claire says, there's a little bit of, I, I, I'm not entirely clear on what the strategy is with it. Um, Claire's Connect, Claire's wants this to be its own platform. Uh, Claire's Connect is, is one platform. Uh, Claire's FileMaker is a separate platform. And they are not the same thing. They don't do the same thing. They can talk to each other, but they're really designed to be separate platforms. So Claris Connect gives you access to, you can connect a SQL database or uh, Salesforce or something to these other APIs, et cetera. Um, you can also connect FileMaker to these other APIs. So it's kind of this option that you can have. And so um, Claris is uh, a push on it. They, they it's, it's kind of, I don't know. I, I don't. I, it's obviously it works. Um, it's got a limited set of of hooks that it has to it. For example, the other day we were trying to connect to PayPal, and someone said, "Hey, let's connect PayPal. We want to use Claris Connect." And I'm like, "Okay, well, there's extra cost with Claris Connect, but we can do that." So we go on the Claris Connect website. It doesn't connect to PayPal. I'm like, "Uh, okay, never mind. Cancel that." So so you have to find things that it works with, uh, and it and it's not free or what I would consider inexpensive. Um, it's designed primarily for, once again, if we go back to the progression of learning, if you have a brand new person who's trying to put things together and have them work, that person between beginner and intermediate is designed for that person. It's designed that you don't have a clue, but you can kind of write a script. Then you can connect uh, a third-party service to FileMaker. Um, or it's designed for people who do MySQL all day and they can connect with this service to something else. So it's... Uh, it's interesting. It wasn't really from if I if I went and talked to the other filemaker consultancies, their general impression was it was not designed for them, right? And Claris is primarily trying to market it towards brand new developers, right? Now that may not it may not be what they'll tell you uh, in public, but I I put this out on a on a conversation on a Claris website, and I had Nick Orr and a bunch of other ex- uh, people, very experienced people, going, "Oh yeah, if it's if it's really designed to be for you know." senior like Matt Petrowski or a, a John Mark Osborne or a Laura Schell, um, you know, it's it just a little different. So uh, I'm not anti-Claris Connect at all, uh, but it's um, it has its it has its place in the market. Um, I'm just hey, not Richard, a brand new beginning I, person. I'm, I'm right, kind of so. hoping, I don't know your thoughts on this, that some small bit of the Claris Connect technology makes it into the FileMaker product. For instance, doing a particular job, not all the jobs that it does, but taking one job that really benefits FileMaker that a lot of people would want to do. Do you see that as a possibility? Well, here's how here's how the formula works at Claris, right? Because I've, I ran into this, I don't know, in the last month again. So you have an idea and you think it's a really great idea. 
And then the vice, if, if, it, if you can get to the vice president at Claris, that, that you will pitch your idea. Why don't we take this XYZ thing and add it to the product? And then they're going to say, okay, justify our investment in that and tell me exactly scientifically, mind you, how we're going to profit from that. And so you have to show a correlation between what they're going to do and the revenue on the other side. And, and so as a result, like, for example, daily live stream training, there's no way to attach that to a real revenue number anywhere. How does that help the company? Well, I can't really prove it. Well, then magically of magical, that's why Claris doesn't do daily live stream because you can't attach a revenue to the investment. So I don't think they'll do it until they come to a conclusion internally that they will make X million more millions of dollars a year if they do it. Does that make sense? That's that's all they're just, yeah. So that's how they make decisions. No, very well said. And, and I couldn't agree more. There's a lot of things I do that indirectly affect my business, such as I have a blog. I make zero money from the blog. Oh, absolutely. But yeah. my and, whole hope oh, is ahead, that Michael, it's a marketing gonna... effort rather than just me buying ads and, and, and on the internet and stuff like that. I blog and I'm hoping that people go, oh, this guy is pretty cool. I like the way he does things. I'll hire him. That's, that's the idea that you have to have for indirect profit from something. And I, I can see why a big company would have a tough time justifying that. Well, I was going to say that marketing – uh, which is really what we're talking about in many ways, is always an intangible. It's the same as advertising. You really can't say, this. Is, I'm going to get a return like this. You are setting seeds to hope that you gain enough interest that it will pay back in revenue. So it is a long-term strategy, but you have to expect that it's going to cost you money to get there. Right. Well, I... I Claris has limited uh, marketing resources, um, dollars, for example, like my market, my, like my video production budget exceeds theirs by quite a bit on an annual basis, which is, I, don't, I, I should never have a bigger budget than them ever. Right. And so, um, and so I clearly, they have a limited budget. They have to justify where every dollar goes and um, it's just the way they operate. And so I, you know, I, if I have an idea, like I had an idea the other day, um, well, well, I will tell you what I said. I said, we're, we're doing this. It was the same thing I talked about earlier. We're doing this enterprise deployment. We're going to show how we can take FileMaker to the enterprise. But what I need from you folks is an unlimited license key that I can use for a month, two months, whatever. Unlimited license key that sets the server to unlimited numbers of users, right? I sent it up to sales. Sales shot it up forward. It went up and up and up. And I got this message back. said, Richard, how much money are we going to make if you do this? And I'm like, you got to be kidding right? We're showing that FileMaker works in the enterprise. Isn't that valuable? Well, kind of not really because for the management to really approve it, they have to know how much money they're going to make on this. And I, I gave up. It, it died right there. And so, and so that is, I mean, understand that Apple is arguably the biggest company in the world, right? Um, depends on how you measure stuff, but it's either one of the biggest or the biggest company in the world. And they're not going to be able to make decisions like we would in a small business. And so I, I'm not mad at them. It's just, it's just like, you know, if, if, if you if you go swimming in a shark tank <clears throat> and you get bit by the shark, are you mad at the shark? You mad at yourself. Right. It's just the way that operation runs. Yeah, I'm always uh, glad to be in business, uh, be a, a, a single person, because when I have a meeting, 
I have it in my head whenever I want, and then I do whatever I decide to do. I don't have to talk to anybody, get any approvals and things like that. In some ways, that's good. In some ways, it's bad. But I think in big businesses, sometimes that's been a, a detriment to their business and, and moving forward. And companies get big, and then they're no longer going to be innovative anymore because they've got so much red tape to do stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that at Apple has continued to make some interesting products. I, I was not really thrilled with some of the stuff they'd done. Over, not, and I'm not talking about Claris now, but it's just Apple, for example. And then they come out with these M1 chips that really are shockingly awesome at a shockingly awesome low price. And I was shocked, and I mean that very seriously. I haven't been that excited. Like, I felt like, because I don't use an Apple Watch, because I don't need, I mean, I, I got, I'm surrounded at any given time about 270 degrees by giant screen monitors. I spin around my command base, spinning around managing the company. I don't need someone texting me more ways, right? You know, so I don't run an Apple Watch because I don't need them finding me when I'm in the bathroom, right? <laughs> and so, and so every time someone comes up with a widget, it doesn't mean I want it. Well, that widget, an M1 chip with that kind of price that does that kind of performance, that is really innovative, really yeah. innovative. That, so. that got me all excited again about Apple. It did. I watched, it did. I watched the videos. I even talked to John Mark to say, well, I haven't been this excited about Apple in a long, long time. That's a correct statement. So it's, we're, we're all thinking the same thing. So it's, it's big companies, innovation's hard. Somewhere, some way, this project was allowed to go forward. Um, someone made the case it will make X millions of dollars. I'm sure they lied on the paperwork because they had no idea. Um, but it's going to turn out to be true. Whatever their lies were <laughs> to get it justified in management, um, so they didn't kill the M1, the Apple Silicon, because they've been working on that for 10 years. It's been a long well, and time. And just think about the money they don't have to send to Intel. Yeah. Oh, well, th that was part of it. That was part of the justification. So. Changing the subject just for a second, because this I found was fascinating. I read today that Elon Musk is now the wealthiest person in the world, and he's worth $189 billion. Yeah, talk about the modern incarnation of Steve Jobs, right? So... Uh, basically gives it to you straight, whether he's, you know, to, to such a degree, he was smoking weed on doing a blog or whatever he was doing, right? Or a live stream, right? So, I mean, I, uh, uh, you know, he makes rockets. And we were just talking about that the other day as using that as an analogy in our book. But, you know, he makes rockets, he blows them up, rockets blows them up. People go, I mean, I, I, he's such not, he's such not a corporate person, right? The, the, the media goes, okay, you're going to launch this rocket. Oh, and, and, it, and if you had a marketing department, they'd be going, oh, uh, yeah, it's going to be the most amazing thing, and it's going to be efficient and flying, and everything will be great. And Elon go, Mo goes, yeah, two chances in three, it's going to blow up, right? And I can see all the – every time I say the word in our videos, I, I've got complaints before from Claris because I'll have a spot in our video, and we'll blow up the product because something happens, right? There's a fireball and an explosion in our video. Uh, and I get this email, Richard, our products don't explode into fire, right? So – so, so then you start to understand why the marketing and sales looks at things. And then you got Elon Musk out there, uh, very Steve Jobs-ish, right? Uh, just telling you how it is, right? Yeah, rocket's going to blow up, but we're good with that. We plan on that. <laughs> oh, you're, you're going to love his comment when he was asked about this. He said, oh, that's interesting. Oh, back to work. Yeah, exactly. Because it's not about the money for him. Yeah. And I, I think that's a fundamental difference between great companies and good companies. You know, you lead with that inspiration. You lead with that that childhood anticipation of something exciting. And that's what Steve Jobs has. That's what Musk has and several others. But it, that, that makes the difference there. 
Yeah, it does. And people want to follow a leader like that. I, I Jobs was crazy, right? So, and he was, a, and I've read his book. I'm actually going to think about going through it a second time because there's a lot of lessons in there to learn. Things that he learned the hard way. Uh, lessons that I've had to learn. I'm like, yeah, dude, I've seen that one, right? Uh, but he, you know, it, it's how to be inspiring and try not to be an asshole at the same time. I guess I can't say that, but right. I, I think that would be one of the takeaways is how to, how to, how to be a great, uh, person in, in, in what you're doing and inspire people without, you know, unnecessarily antagonizing them. And it's something I've had to learn. Right. So, um, and I'm not always great at it. Right. So it's like, you know, let's do great work. So, yeah. Well, I think the thing that is common to people like yourself, Richard, is that you have a passion and you have a vision and you're not going to let anybody dissuade you from it. And, you know, I think that that's what the world needs, people with passion and vision. You know, same with Elon Musk. He's got passion. He's got a vision that's absolutely unbelievable. And he doesn't let anybody tell him it can't be done. No, absolutely. I, I, I like that. I mean, I, 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 there are days where I, you know, and when Mark knows about this, there'll be days when something will happen with the platform and something, someone will make a decision somewhere and, and I'll just call Mark and I'll be like, rawr, rawr, I'm growling. You hear like a pit bull growling on the phone. Right. And I'm just wound around the axle because it's like, Hey, this, from my perspective, doesn't make any sense. But I think, I think the thing that we have to do is in a lot of ways, cut Claris a lot of slack because we're not seeing the world from their shoes. And to be honest, they don't see the world from our shoes. Um, and so you have to really understand that, that they're seeing things, there's pressures on them um, to do things a certain way. Who knows what those pressures are? We don't see them. They don't advertise their, their, their laundry out in the air like that. Um, I mean, if they did a little bit, I think the development committee would be more, uh, I guess, forgiving, I guess, of, of some things that go on. But, um, you know, I, I think it's the biggest thing that I've tried to learn is put your put yourself in the other person's shoes so you can have a level of sympathy um, with with the tough decisions they're making. Right. Um, and I, I try to remember that. And, and then Mark always says, don't take it personal. Right. Because I tend to do that. So, yeah, I, I definitely get the impression that they run really lean down there, um, largely because they always had to be a profitable unit, um, because here's the thing, Apple, it's it's it's. So there's a, the conversation, okay, so I'm going to just talk briefly about this. So most of you should know this already, but Apple owns Claris. Apple's part of that. Apple, here's the thing. Apple uses FileMaker. Apple uses FileMaker a lot. Like I would say a third of its operations have, or more, maybe more than that, have FileMaker at the core of a lot of the things they're doing. And so FileMaker can't go out of business and can't be re realistically sold in a reasonable way because it would expose Apple's operations to, you know, inefficiencies in performance and things like that. So Apple needs Claris to build FileMaker if for no other reason that they use the hell out of it, right? Now, that being said, Claris is always supposed to be this prof profitable uh, department. And so there's these pressures to, you know, only invest enough so we can then, you know, then match the sales so we can show that we're profitable, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's this pressure on that back end. So um, it's interesting, right? Cause you know, for example, Steve jobs used FileMaker. He did. He used to call one of the SEs. I talked to her and she said it was the most nerve wracking thing. Cause she'd get this call Saturday night at 10 o'clock and it was this number and it was Steve jobs calling her for tech support on how she builds a relationship in FileMaker. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's Alexi, right? She'll tell you this story. And, um, you know, and so 
company uses it. Jobs believed in it. Jobs personally used it. And so, um, you know, it's a great product. The organ, the team is is working really hard to do great. I I do think they're probably under undercapitalized a little bit because that they, they, their team runs so fast down there. I mean, their senior managers. I had a, ma- a meeting with one of their VPs, and and during the meeting with the VP, it was like a thirty minute meeting. He had five urgent crisis phone calls all during the meeting that stopped the meeting. I don't know the meeting kind of went anywhere, but it was interesting. And so that tells me that. It's not that he had any unusual fires, it's that he was spread that thin. And so these these folks are running really hard down there and they're working really hard. They're trying really hard. That's why I try not to get too aggravated when something happens I don't like because A, it's not my company, it's their company. And B, they have pressures we don't know about. Yeah. Right? They, yeah so. A lot of issues it, at play. It, it's a tough yeah. market yeah. to be in the technology market because it's moving so fast. Yeah, I agree. They that's they hired. They brought in some new talent, um, and they're uh, trying to address that. That's I guess why we have this rolling release thing, right? So every, I would say every between every three every three weeks to three months, you're going to get a new update to FileMaker, which could have new features in there. It could have new bug fixes. It could be in in, in giving you new bugs, <laughs> right? Beta features um, too. So yeah, so yeah, it's pre-release features. That's that's my Elon Musk uh, rocket uh, analogy. So you know, Claris puts a preview feature in there. It's like Elon Musk making rockets, right? They're not Claris isn't trying to get it right the first time. They're just shooting a rocket and see if it explodes with the customers. The customers like it. They don't like it. They get the feedback. They incorporate it. They fix the valve that caused the rocket to blow up. They change it. And then they shoot it again, and they keep shooting it until the customers love it. I think it's a great idea. I, I agree. Just me personally. Yeah, I, I know our staff is excited about uh, new things that they can play with, not having to wait a year. And I know that we're committed to doing what weekly YouTube videos. So we've had more content than we have time to do because of all the things to talk about. So in in a sense, the, the new direction in this agile development for me is a little bit of that M1 taste in my mouth, that that kid yeah. in the candy store having fun again with yes. files. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I was asking like, well, how, I mean, cause we go through all this pain and agony. How did you guys make this work? And so talking to the product management team, they, what they used to do is they have a base set of code for the product and they would. And so when you have, say like, we're going to make FileMaker, say we're making, we're on 17 and we're going to make 18, they would fork the code. And so they'd split the code. So you'd have this master kind of version of FileMaker and then they'd be working on, and they start with build number one and they build all the way up to build two or 300. And then when they would, when they would go on the 19, they would have to reintegrate the original, their new, the latest, you know, FileMaker 18 code with their master. And that reintegration instigated a lot of bugs, right? And so they have quit doing that, is my understanding. And so the the the, the inflection points, the points where they accidentally put bugs into the product, those points have been dramatically re, uh, reduced. And so they can do updates faster because they're not, accidentally tripping and putting a bug into the product that they don't know about. Does that make sense? Yeah. So does anybody remember back between FileMaker two and three, there was almost a three year time period, I believe. And then they went to yearly releases. Now we're on quarter releases and it really matches the way that the market's moving right now. And I think it's a smart move. I, I I thought, how are they going to do this? But the more I thought about it and I go, wow, this is, this is, this is cool stuff. Bringing out revisions to the product line every quarter really lets us see those technologies integrated with it and come out in a timely manner. 
Well, it's even faster than a quarter sometimes, right? So it depends on the urgency of a bug. And we saw an update. There was an update that came out. And I don't remember which one it was, but then like three weeks later, or two weeks later, there was another update because they had kind of a mission critical bug. So it's not even they're locked into a quarter. They, they, they want to do at least one a quarter, but I think it's, they shoot them out when they feel compelled to do that. And, um, and that's also tricky from Claris's standpoint, because there was, there was, once again, we don't understand all the moving pieces behind the curtain, but I will tell you that Claris could only release products a certain way, a certain time of the year, because there was financial accounting information because Apple's a publicly traded company and they had to account for like, if we do this new feature, then how does this, it, it, it hamstrung the company. They've had to redo a bunch of the way they do accounting down there. And I don't understand it entirely, Oxley, Sarbanes, and a bunch of stuff, but it has to do with how new products are released into market and even when in the quarter they release it, right? The product had to get done, it had to be bug-free, had to be certified, and it had to be released per an approved schedule by Apple, right? Or by their corporate financial people who don't use FileMaker at all, right? So they fixed that. So there's a lot of underlying infrastructure changes to the corporation to allow them to do this stuff. Yeah, they basically modernized their whole way they released their products. And it, was, it seems so strange, but I'm getting used to it and I'm liking it a lot. It's It seems like a great way to do things. I can't see any holes in their plan. Well, it makes it nicer because from a training perspective, then we're, we're working on little training bits all year long instead of this giant avalanche of stuff that comes out in May, right? So um, I, I I like not having to, you know, have times of the month where my staff is slow than times where we're all working double overtime because, you know, here comes, you know, the next release in May and it's got, you know, 50 new features or whatever it is. So. So speaking of features and the platform changes, I just wanted to briefly uh, talk to the audience about the way FileMaker is licensed. And then uh, Richard, we could talk briefly about how you've seen changes over the years and what your thoughts are on the current licensing model. Sure. So essentially, um, there's some good things that have happened lately in that when you purchase FileMaker, typically you're purchasing by the user, and we call it a named user. So Sally, Mary, Joe, and Tom. Um, so I have four users. I buy four licenses, and that each user gets to use any aspect of the platform, as well as three instances of FileMaker server. And all of that comes complete. So in the past, we've had to worry about, okay, well, how many you know web direct connections and things like that? You had to worry about every aspect of it. But now uh, that user can use any aspect of the platform, whether it be FileMaker Go or Pro or what have you. And then in addition to that, there's this optional thing called concurrencies, which allows you to buy FileMaker in a way that doesn't necessarily need a named user. For example, if you want to run a small web direct site and you want that to be sort of public facing and you're not sure who the users are going to be that use it, you can buy concurrencies. And in that situation, you only pay for the usage, you know, user by user. If they're connected, that counts as one. If two people are connected, that counts as two, but we don't really care who they are. And those are two ways to purchase FileMaker today. So what are your thoughts on the, the fact that they provide now three server versions? And if your user is, so long as they're counted in the pool, they can use any aspect of a licensing. Do you think that's been a big improvement? 
I personally like the way they sell it. It makes it simple. It's a uh, buy one, and it, it's it's a, it's basically kind of the, the buffet model. If you go to a, a restaurant, it's a buffet. You three people come in for for or five people or eight people come in, and those five or eight people can eat all they want a FileMaker because it's the person. So they say, well, I have a computer at home, and I have two offices or whatever. Claris doesn't care because it's licensed to that person, right? Um, there are some spots where Claris. And it kind of gets into this situation where um, in business, there's two, two, two fundamental concepts that are counter, counter to each other generally. One is in business, you don't want to say no to your customer if you can at all help it. The other, other, the other co competing concept is you can't be everything to everyone, right? And, and those two statements um, have caused all sorts of chafing and anxiety and stuff um, with the developers in FileMaker or Claris. Um, because for example, if you want to buy the product, you can either buy a single copy of pro by itself. It's a one kind of outlier, right? Or you can buy the minimum, you know, investment of five seats. You can't buy three seats or four seats. You have to buy the minimum five. So if you have two people in a company, there's not really a clean way of doing that. You have to kind of ups, upsize your order to five. And so that's one of those moments where people say no. And I found out that this was largely because Claris didn't want small transactions. There's a certain amount of, um, you know, they, they, they want serious people using the product. They, 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 they don't want a transaction, you know, people buying stuff for them for 199 bucks. They want a minimum transaction size. I, I don't know what that number is, but it seems to be somewhere around seven, eight hundred, nine hundred dollars is the minimum transaction size they want. And so what's interesting about that is that they end up saying no to a bunch of people and, and some of these people grumble and complain and then they upgrade to five or they don't. Right. Um, and so that's kind of these two competing concepts. Once again, why, you know, uh, you know, cause, cause I'm trying to train people on this and, and I, it's, it's very disheartening for me in a live stream when someone goes, why does FileMaker hate me? And I go, they don't hate you. What's, what's your problem? And I feel like a hot, you know, TV talk show, right? What's your problem? Well, they make me buy five copies when I only have, two people and we're like the homeless nuns of Notre Dame and we're feeding the homeless people who are dying on the street. And why do we have to buy five when we only have two people? And you're like, ah, so I, I ended up having to play defense attorney for Claris on live TV, which I'm not paid to do. And it's uh, a tough spot. Right. And so they're saying no, at the same time, we understand that they can't be everything to everyone. Does that make sense? So um, so they can't say yes to everything. Oh, yeah. Would you like this? Oh, yeah. You can have that, too. Would you like uh, ice cream and a cherry on the top? Right. But Richard, do you think they've left the the customers behind who started the FileMaker revolution? That's how it started with these small mom and pops who wouldn't even have a server. They just had one copy of FileMaker and they're running their whole business. on it. Do you think they might have left them behind a little bit? Or I, I'm just curious. Well, those, yeah, it's complicated. I mean, there's no, I mean, when, when you say no to people, you're clearly, you know, if you have to say no once or twice, that's great. But there's been three recent no's that have gone on. And I don't necessarily disagree with the no's. I just think that there has to be a way of saying yes another way besides give me money, right? So the three, the three things that have riled everyone up, four of them actually, but um, there was the issue with shared hosting, right? That was one. So people would get together and share Hosting. So Clara said, no, you can't do that. Um, I think that was tied to some security issues and probably some lawsuits that went on. And Clara just wanted to simplify that. Um, 
the second one was uh, we don't want you to do runtimes, which is fine. Once again, the runtime people weren't really generating revenue for FileMaker. But then, you know, once so I'm giving you these, these are, these are no's, four no's that came back to back to back. The, the next one was you have to buy at least five copies. You can't buy two or three. That was another no. And then the next no that will hit upon people's heads will be the de uh, deprecation of peer-to-peer -peer sharing, which at some point will happen. Um, and then there's also the PHP stuff, whatever. So that's like five. But the point is when you say no, 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 hell no, eventually people get this. This is why people call, call on the radio, my broadcast, and they go, why does Claris hate me? And they don't. That's the problem. They're trying to, they can't say yes to everything. My only thought process would be is try to come up with a alternate yes that, you know, feeds that, that solves the financial needs of Claris while not really saying no, say yes a different way. Right. And, and, and so have they left people behind? Cause they said yes, three or four or five times. Uh, yeah. Invariably. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah. Maybe FileMaker light. Well, I've, we've, I've been a big proponent that they would make uh, FileMaker Pro uh, free, right? And, um, and, and then charge for the businesses at that level. If you made FileMaker Pro free and you had a peer-to-peer -peer option on it for like one or two connections, then you solve the runtime problem. Uh, the runtime problem goes away because people could grab FileMaker Pro. It would they have to go through a separate install, but they could sell their little widget thing with it, right? Um, it would solve the people who need less than five copies, who 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 really are not going to be big spenders with you anyway. But instead of you, instead of them having to use some other software and not talk badly about FileMaker, they still use FileMaker. You you know, I mean, the question is, would you give money away not doing it that way? And I don't. There'd be this area in there where. Maybe there's a handful of orders, you know, I don't know how many there would be that 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 would have been that would have upgraded to five, um, but now they're going to do it for free because they can do peer, maybe peer to peer with two people or something. But you get the idea. So you so the people who want collaborative sharing write the check, and historically that's all the people that write the checks anyway. How many people? How much of FileMaker is actually driven by single license copy sales? I actually don't know the answer to that. But my general impression is that Claris wants to sell this to business, to organizations. That's where the money's at. As soon as you want to collaboratively share with your team, you need to write a check, period. So even if peer-to-peer -peer didn't have any, or even if Pro did, was free and did couldn't you know, connect peer-to-peer, -peer, that would still solve a lot of problems. And it would allow you to solve the college student problem, like here's free software, go learn it, go master it, become the next John Mark Osborne, become the next Richard Carlton. You know, and because because we get a lot of old people in the FileMaker community, we need a lot of new people in there. And I'm telling you, college students are not going to buy FileMaker. Period. I don't know what crack you're smoking if you think they will. Right, right? they're going to go for something free like JavaScript and learn that. Well, so many technologies out there that are free that they don't have to write a check for. Right, so it's just a fundamental. Um, and obviously, once again, there are pressures on Claris that I don't know about. Otherwise they would have done this. Right. But um, I know Dominique was afraid of doing the live uh, specifically. They'd, they'd had surveys within the company. And I think the company I, from I heard at one point was evenly split between making pro free and not making it free. Um, but I, you know, but if you're taking things away, then you might want to, if you're going to say a bunch of no's and you might want to have a big yes in there to mitigate all the, you know, <laughs> the angst. <laughs> So, it's so funny because anyway. Richard, your story at the beginning was how you started with FileMaker, but it was free. It was handed to you, and it was free for me when yes. I started with FileMaker. Yeah. John, did you have to pay for FileMaker? Or did you start for free? Well, yeah, I've exactly. never paid for FileMaker. So, from a development standpoint, and 
<laughs> okay, okay, stop. Uh, you, you, you should pay for it if you're a rich, famous trainer like you are. Okay? Uh, but I don't have to. It's called okay. FBA. <laughs> okay. Well, no, but you're paying through them, right? You're FBA, right? You True. pay that's, 500 that's bucks a year. No, you're, yeah, you're right. You're still paying for it. The point is that the people who can should pay for it, and the college students can't. They're just not going yeah. to. They can't. So anyway, I'm sorry. I'm just but I'm, I'm on that topic because it's a fundamental that biz, the businesses that want to grow. It was like, okay, so I saw, I'm not going to name the name of the consultant who said this the other day. It was a conversation that was going on online. And he said that that both um, drug dealers and FileMaker had the same problem. They're on the corner trying to sell their software. And, but the drug dealer really knows how to do it because he gives them a free sample mm-hmm. uh, of it, right? And and that's how he hooks them on it. And then he charges money yeah. for it after he hooks them on it, right? And, and Claire's on the drug corner says, hey, kid, you want some Coke? This stuff's really great. And then, oh, by the way, it's $540 for you to even have one hit, right? And so uh, what are you going right. to, where are you going to go, right? <laughs> so it was, it was literally someone wrote up a comparison. Uh, drug dealers were better at pimping their stuff than Claris was. And I was laughing. So once again, it's, it's the mechanics of this. And I, I don't, and I, and I, and I, I really cringe about being uh, overly negative about this. The platform is a fantastic platform. The product's great. The company's trying really hard. Um, it does things it's never done before. It goes faster, better, farther, further than it ever has before. But the problem is you get a bunch of old guys sitting around on a podcast and we start complaining about the pieces we don't like. And I really I always makes me sensitive to that. You know, you need to be positive as well as these are yeah. areas that could use improvement. Well, I object to being called referred to as an old guy. <laughs> yeah, you're I not really old at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think the I think the bigger problem is that the perception is that farmaker licensing has become too expensive. Now, I personally don't think it is. I think it's really good value considering how fast you can develop and how much you can do with it in a very short amount of time. But the problem in the in the perception is that it's too expensive. And until they somehow manage to address that issue, they're always going to struggle for revenue. Well, okay, so you, you want to so we assume that okay, so let me walk this we step through that. So if you unpack it, as they say. So if you want to grow revenue, you need to grow the users, right? And and the people who are complaining that it's really expensive, a huge chunk of them are this really small operators, right? Um, there's also, you could make, you know, have a conversation about part of the cloud being kind of expensive. Let's just leave that aside for the moment. Let's, but if you took care of the people, less than five people, and the college students of the world, and, I, and the college students is kind of a loose term, but we're talking about the 20-year-olds who don't, are broke, and can't afford to drive to work because they can't put gas in the car or whatever. Um, you know, uh, if you could address that specifically, those areas specifically, then the complaining about it being too expensive, a lot of that would go away. I don't think it's too expensive for five people to use at all in a business. They should be able to spend a thousand bucks a year, no problem. Okay. Um, on if it's mission critical for them. Yeah. Now, if they're brand new and, and you're not sharing it with anyone, then, then, is, it a, is there an expectation that the college student is going to give you $540, right? Is that a realistic expectation? And so that, and of course, that's where Michael's saying it's too expensive, right? Because you have these people bouncing, right? It depends on where you fall in your continuum of single person college student to uh, CEO Fortune 500, right? Buying thousands of copies. Yeah. 
I think you need a balance of both because both customer types yeah. are there. You have organizations, large mission critical things that happen. They need a platform they can depend on that they're willing to pay uh, whatever it takes to get that done. Yet at the same time, you have a community of developers. Developers are required to really make the platform sing. So you need to introduce it to that. So like if I look at Amazon Web Services and think about how their model is, they have that exact same paradigm. They have a free service that introduces developers and encourages free development for a whole year. Wonderful. And then you get all these developers that are excited about the platform. But then the moment you actually go to use it, you know, things start adding up very quickly. And there are companies that spend literally millions of dollars a month on AWS services for the infrastructure that it provides. So I think you can have your cake and eat it too. So I think it's just a matter of saying yes in another way, just as you said earlier. Richard. Right. You have to you have to say yes in another way. And I, and it goes for everyone who's in business, you're making decisions and you're affecting customers, Mark, you'd have to do it all the time. If you're going to say no to someone, then what I'm in my mind, when I say no to someone, I'm like, okay, did we say no recently as well? And am I going to have to say no tomorrow? Cause I know something else is coming. And when you start rip a nose off like a machine gun. No, 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 no. That has an impact, right? So you need to find a way of going, uh, damn it, we need to find a way to say yes to this. And so that's kind of the, at least with me, but I'm not Apple. I'm not, I'm not a billion dollar company. So I, what do I know? Right. Well, that's good. Now, man, I'm not, I swear. <laughs> but he does spend more money on marketing for videos. Uh, that's not even close. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, I, I wanted to talk briefly, and we already kind of mentioned it a little bit, where we talked about FileMaker training specifically for new developers. And um, we already talked about some of the challenges, and the UUID was a perfect example. Are there any other challenges training new students in FileMaker? And, and maybe we can hear from, from everyone here, but um, maybe we'll start with you, Richard. Like, What are some of the things that people just don't seem to get, and you have to go through extra effort to kind of have them materialize in their head? Well, they, the, uh, most of them are confused about the licensing, but I think it's a little bit, well, it's, it would be generally should be easier to explain to them. Um, <clears throat> then when they get actually into the product, it's just structuring things, understanding context. Context is always this big thing, right? You know, um, you know, what, what, what layout are you on? What's your found set? You know, what's your sword state? Things like that. Those are always tough, tough things. <clears throat> we get a lot of people who want to, you know, connect and do things. Um, and so they can look at Claris Connect or they can, you know, write their own API. But I, it, it, it's, it's once you get past the basics of what are relationships, what is a button, what's a basic script, I think the next thing they have to start thinking about is, is, is rolling it out, like you talked about, uh, how to deploy it, basic level security. And then after that, they have to start thinking about performance, right? And so training them on, hey, you can't put a summary field on every layout, right? Kind of thing. And and if you want a total at the bottom, you have to have a button that updates the total or some sort of controlled process for that. But I don't know. What do you, John, Mark, what do you think about training? When, when Mark asked that, the first thing that came to mind uh, was relationships. But when you mentioned context, I'm all, yeah, that's... That's always the toughest roadblock to keep in mind that you're here on this layout, which means that your relationships and your scripts that refer to relationships and calculations all have this starting point. And you have to realize where you're at. And if you're running a script and it's going from layout to layout to layout, you got to realize where you're at. It, it's a tough thing for people to understand the context. And I would throw in their perspective as well. Um, a lot of people talk about context, but there's also perspective. And then, you know, of course, relationships, I always say to my students, is the easiest, hardest thing to understand. It's like it takes you the longest time to understand how to to just think of, of your business 
or somebody else's business in terms of electronics, you know, and once you, once you've done it long enough, you're like, oh yeah, okay. I can look at any business right now and go, okay, there's a table, 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 field, 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 you know, it's, it gets pretty easy, but getting there on the relationships is probably one of the toughest things. But when you get there, you're like, wow, I'm at the top of the hill. This wasn't really that hard. Um, or it's not really that hard to do. You can do it again the next time, get up that hill much faster, and each time you get up there faster. No, I totally agree. I think it's one of those things. It's like a, it's like I hated word problems in school, like mathematics. Like if the train leaves at 20 miles an hour and you're going to go this far, and then how long will it take for the train to get there? And um, word problems, I hated them, and now I love them because all I deal in life are word problems, right? Uh, relationships like that are the, kind of the same way. Uh, understand context is the same way, but uh, you, you get to the top of the hill and you look down and you're like, wow, it was worth learning. It's very valuable. It helps the organization or I can sell my services to someone. And, and because not everyone, business owners don't want to have to learn about relationships. They just want it to work. So if you know how to do it, that's valuable to someone, right? So. Yeah. So I think the tough thing about uh, training people, especially beginners, is getting them over that hump and and understanding the the paradigm. And it, it's a tough job. I, I usually focus mostly on my training on on intermediate. Uh, not a lot of beginner stuff out there because um, I, I feel like that's where I can really help people make that move from beginner into intermediate and then into advanced development, which is really what I'm excited about. Cause I love, I love doing all these things with scripts and calculations and figuring out crazy ways to do stuff. And so do a lot of people in the FileMaker market. And I think that's where I like to focus on uh, training beginner students is really probably one of the hardest things to do. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And of course you get people who help me do the broadcasts and, and their bent sometimes is more beginner to more advanced. You know, Nick Hunter likes to talk about advanced things, but I tell him, hey, we have to bring the beginners along. <clears throat> and, of course, one of the challenges is that you'll have a, a, a live stream and then you'll have people in there who are beginner, intermediate, and advanced. And trying to keep them all entertained at the same time is uh, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, I can imagine how tricky that must be. Well, a lot of the um, – a lot of – sharing knowledge which we all do you know whether it's for profit or just because we like to share it is just about opening people's eyes and one of the things that i've noticed over the years is that people literally don't understand what a relational database is and i always use the analogy it's like a city you've got a city that's the parent then you've got subdivisions that's a child and then you've got streets in there, which is the child of that. And you go keep going down and, you know, give them a visual explanation of what a data a relational database is. And so they can go, I get it. I get it. Because I think the problem is they don't get it. And it's a hard concept to understand. For all of us, it's easy because it's like second second nature. But for people who've never done it before, it's not easy. Well, that's the trick with the, the, the training. So when, when we do recorded training, then we go back and animate those, right? And so the animation takes actually most of the investment to animate it to make it great. When you're on live TV, there's only so much animation you do. I, we compensate for some pre-canned graphics and a lot of hand-waving in front of the camera, um, you know, and then doing a live demo on screen. But that's the trick in terms of training is, is the method, right? You know, a lot, some people like a book. They read a book. Um, a lot of people prefer, I think the number one preferred method is is the, Number one preferred method is the pre-recorded 
uh, training with the, you know, like what John Mark does um, and then demoing it and things like that. And then the live stream is just kind of the wild west. Right. So um, and some people like that because they can ask questions. Right. It's just that you can't dictate the topic on the live stream. If you're if you have a collection of videos and they're looking at John Mark's training, they can go to a specific section on scripts or relationships or whatever, and they can watch what they want on the live stream. Hey, we decide what's on the broadcast and you don't get to adjust that in flight. I have, I have some people who go on YouTube, um, a couple of people that are kind of like known, <laughs> known, uh, suspects that show up on YouTube and they will go off and say, Oh yeah, I'm a doctor and so-and-so and I need 50 copies. What's the best way of getting a licensed copy? Well, we're not talking about licensing today, but the guy, yeah, so you're trying to keep the conversation on topic in a live environment. Yeah. I, I think it was quite interesting what you mentioned, uh, that, you know, that, and, I, and maybe you'd said this or maybe you didn't, but this is why I took it, is that the training's changed a lot over the years. Because I remember when training started, it was really, when I when I wrote Scriptology along with Matt Petrowski, it, it, was, it was, that was, you know, back in the 90s, uh, or, wow, it's early 90s. <laughs> Trying to remember what it was. It's been a long time. Uh, but, you know, that was the way people wanted to learn back then. But then now all of a sudden we have blogs and we have podcasts and we have video training and all this stuff. And and the book is, is, is hard to keep up because it takes, it actually takes less time to record a video than to write a book by far, um, if you've ever done both. And so the difficult part is I feel like the book is dying to some degree because I can't get the information out fast enough, especially with these quarter releases. So my question is, what are your thoughts on that, Richard? Well, we have two books in market. We skipped the 18 book because there really wasn't enough uh, new stuff in 18 for us to <laughs> update the book on. Uh, we're updating the 19 book. We, we're going to do the book updates probably once a year, but we can do it more gradually because we have these rolling releases. It's not just this giant once a year, big release in May, this big avalanche of uh, product features, right? So we're going to update the book once, uh, once a year. The video training and the live streams are, I, I track closer with that, but some people just prefer that kind of training. And, and I think to your point about how things have changed over the years, I was, I had gone back on eBay and I was trying to find old copies of training, training, your training, other people's training from like 1990 and 1988 and stuff. And, and I found this intermediate, uh, it was a course where a company's long since gone out of business and it was like a teacher's edition, like this curriculum. And I got the intermediate book and I was looking at it and their idea of the intermediate skill set was, Hey, we're going to put, uh, we're going to do Avery labels out of a printer. And I'm like, what? Right. And, and, and suddenly I realized I had this realization that, uh, what we consider intermediate or basic or advanced is really, uh, you know, warp forward, right? Right. We're in the, you know, we're in the future, right? Buck Rogers, right? Um, it's really way forward. And so things that we used to consider intermediate are now considered trivial, basic stuff because people come to the computer, come to their mobile device with some sort of basic skill set on how to, you know, manage, like, like I would, there's this explanation there, like how you could right click and left click a mouse to get different things in FileMaker. I'm like, dude, dude, right? That's not even a conversation we have anymore. Right. So, um, I mean, you might mention it off bleak, right click, left click for different things, but not, not that your mouse might have two buttons. And if it doesn't, then you might go over here and hold the control key or whatever. Right. Um, it's things have just changed and it not bad. It's good. I love it. I think it's great. And Claris is working really hard to keep up to date with it, which is good. Um, I, I think the innovation and modernization, uh, the speed that they're doing is, is, is much more appropriate for the, uh, marketplace. And, 
training has changed in the marketplace. You have companies like Udemy who have literally just taken the world by storm in terms of millions and millions of students taking courses that are $9.99 and so forth. And it seems like the whole world is learning through video versus through books. Uh, like you guys said, I mean, there's a, there's a, obviously there's people that still love to read and work, learn better that way, but it seems as though our culture, our society learns better visually. Most people learn visual, better visually and video is now available more than ever. So I wanted to get quickly your thoughts. I know you guys have, both you guys have uh, courses on Udemy. What, what's the latest and greatest? Is this still a viable option for people to learn or is that sort of old news nowadays? My issues, Udemy started me out in the video train. Well, I, I started out a long time ago, but I was I was I was always working for a company and they were taking most of the profits. And then I saw Udemy, oh, this looks great. Oh, okay, great, let's do this. And uh, I've since fallen out of love with Udemy, even though they started me out uh, doing my own videos with, you know, all, I do everything, right? I do all the post-production if there is any and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I upload my, it was, it sounded like a great idea and, uh, and I've made, uh, you know, a significant amount of money with Udemy. But the problem with Udemy is that they are still controlling me and not letting me what I want to do. I mean, just trying to get your video published, there's so many rules and they change every time you publish a video. And then they decide they want to take out so much money every time they sell a copy of it. It, it to me, uh, Udemy, yes, good platform to start off on, but now I've got my own platform and I'm probably not going to uh, release videos on Udemy anymore because just because of the bad experience I've had with them and, and what they do as far as taking money out of, uh, you know, that, that they really had no, they didn't, they didn't generate that business. They should have a, they shouldn't be take 50, 60, 70, 80% of the money. It's just too much money. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so Udemy, so, so first off, so people understand YouTube is kind of a disaster. It's, it's fraught with tons of ads and tons of, uh, uh, you know, not great. I mean, I, in terms of trying to control how it looks and the way it works, it's a kind of a nightmare. So that's a non-starter. Um, well, they're just as bad as you to me. They, 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 they uh, look over everything. will stop anything they want to, but, but that's another story. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then, and you to me, the problem with you to me is that they were kind of earlier in the marketplace, but at the end of the day, like we're, if you look at FileMaker, FileMaker has been in business with good decisions, bad decisions. It doesn't matter what you think of them. They're still here and there's still a huge number of people that use the platform, which means that fundamentally it's hard to knock them off their position because it's, they have a compelling product. Udemy is playing back videos and you can only do that so many ways. And so about every two weeks, and Mark, uh, John, I, I know this happens for you, is that you get this letter from some other competing company. Hey, you're the most amazing video author ever. We love you. Why don't you quit using Udemy and come over here and, and do uh, work with us instead, right? And so there's a bunch of companies that are trying to come into that space. Uh, and, and Udemy is aggravated a lot of people because um, they, like I have a course that say $79. Okay, when I sell it for $79, I want $79, right? So so I remember what what point that they, they said, well, we have this special campaign thing on Udemy. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, whatever. You guys are smart. You know how to make money. And they're like, we're going to sell your your product for $10. I'm like, uh, that sounds like a really bad idea, but we'll let you try it. And then, and then, but but we brought some people into the platform. And so, and so since we brought those people into the platform and they're only seeing you because we're so awesome, we're going to take 90% of it. So I was selling courses for $1.50. Okay. No, right. I mean, you cannot 
run. I mean, if you, uh, operation like we have, you cannot charge someone a buck fifty for seventy hours of video training. It's just not a doable function. And so um, they have kind of dug themselves a hole, right? And so we run our own platform uh, directly. We're actually using Vimeo, but we front end it. Um, so we built, rebuilt around that and gotten rid of that. But, but the latest thing from uh, Udemy was like, well, you can't have free courses that are longer than two hours. Well, I had a number of free courses that are three, four, five hours. And Udemy, out of their blue, just delisted some of them uh, for no apparent reason whatsoever. And, and I'm like, you guys suck, right? Really, right? And so we, when you put a course up, it's approved, it's going, it's helping the FileMaker platform, it's helping your... Uh, outreach, and then they just delist it because they don't want—they don't like you, like it anymore, or like you anymore, right? Uh, very aggravating. Yeah, they just delisted one of my products, um, which was a paid product, uh, by the way. I'm not sure why. I don't really care. Um, I don't want to deal with you to me. But it, it's interesting when I'm talking here. I have a pad of paper in front of me, and I'm writing down stuff I want to say, and just literally about at the exact same time you mentioned that, hey, how many of these things do you get a week from other companies saying, hey, we're the next best thing? You know, I was like, that's what I was writing down right when you said it. I was like, I get that at least once a week. I've probably gotten, uh, well, I should say maybe more like once a month of average out, but I've probably gotten at least two dozen of those emails. And I fell for it at first. Like I put, I put one of my smallest products on there just to test it out. And, you know, they, they would... Uh, put the price on it. They wouldn't let me decide what the price was. And it was just crazy. So I, I just ignore those things altogether. And I'm just doing my own platform now. Um, I use Thinkific. If anybody's interested, it's a really good platform. I think Mark uses it as well. I like it a lot. Um, you pay, I pay $100 a month to have them do this and they have all kinds of great features. There's other plans, but I think Mike, Mark might want to talk a little bit about Thinkific because you've worked with it a lot now. Yeah. Yeah. I run the two Two sites on Thinkific. One is a personal site, and one is for the company. Uh, great company in Canada. Just it's all about you, the content creator, having full and complete control of your own stuff. So um, yes, you do pay a monthly fee, but they don't actually charge you any transactional charges on top of that. So it's pretty much you can put whatever you want out there up to the limit of your account. So it's it's a very good offering. And there's other offerings like Thinkific out there, but Thinkific is one of the better ones. And actually, John, you introduced me to it. So if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be using it today, but it's been great. And we never went the Udemy. I was tempted many times. I've talked to Richard about it. I've talked to you, John. Um, but I think I think Udemy might be better for content creators who are pro perhaps just starting out with zero list and they just need some form of publicity so they can put a free course up there, maybe get a few people interested. And then they can consider putting their own content on their own site when they have a list to market to. Yeah, exactly. It's they can afford to sell their courses for a dollar fifty when they're just starting out, but later on, we can't make a living forever on a dollar fifty per video. So it's yeah. So it's a it's a good starting platform because they're gonna go out and market it, right? They're gonna they're gonna they're gonna sell it at a really low price, but they're gonna get the marketing out there and get people viewing your stuff. And then you can explode off of that. And I just started a Vimeo account as well um, because it's just, it really is a great platform for producing video, for, for displaying video at your on your terms and not YouTube's terms. Yes, 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 yes. YouTube is a disaster for that. I agree. Yeah, you control what videos come after, right? Because, I mean, the last thing I need is, 
you know, we talk about something and then some random ads start showing up for people based upon what their interest is. And, and like someone called me the other day and goes, like, why do you have porn on my 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 video? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, because they had seen some whatever thing on YouTube, it, it started putting ads up when they got done. And some of it was kind of risque uh, video, like ads that are on the back end. I'm like, hey, that's not me. That's YouTube. I'm like, so people sometimes lose track of what you're doing and where YouTube is inserting itself. Um, and I was like, I could do without that, that call. <laughs> Interesting thing is I, I stopped Googling because I saw the ads in YouTube showing what I Googled. I'm like, how did that happen? I'm like, okay, that's just a coincidence. Two, three, four, five, six kept happening. Kept. I just changed my search and I'm not Googling anymore. Uh, yeah, there you go. You have to change it to that duck, uh, duck, duck, go or whatever that is. That's what I'm using. Yeah. yeah. It, it, and I think they're based off the, the platform, but at least my, my information is not going to Google who also owns YouTube and, and, you know, doing crazy stuff with selling my information. I, I'm just done with that whole thing, but uh, I think we're probably digressing a little bit. Yeah, here. <laughs> no, we're off in the weeds, but yeah, that's, it's all about getting the FileMaker training content out in front of people. So Richard, uh, you're the only person that I know, uh, maybe Matt Petrowski does it occasionally, but live streaming in the FileMaker community, I'm not, I mean, people do podcasting and stuff like that, but live streaming video uh, is, is kind of, I think you're an innovator in that sense that you know, you've boldly gone and not only have you do, done it, you're not doing it just once a week, you're doing it every day. So I can only imagine the ramp up that it took you as a, as a creator to literally perform every day, sort of off the cuff on the fly, you know, um, maybe you want to describe a little bit about what you've learned from live streaming. And if you still think it's worth it as something that's profitable, or is it simply just rewarding for you as a human? Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know that I've ever figured out how to make it profitable. So for people thinking that, yeah, you're going to do this. And, and like, I, I have a bunch of gamers like this live stream, right? So you could live stream, you have to live stream something content that people care about. And the, the FileMaker community is obviously much smaller than like a gaming community. And, uh, but I have gamers that come to me like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to like race a car and blow stuff up and play this uh, League of Legends game or something, right? And I'll have all these people and they get a check at the end of the month for all the people watch them and they get $25 or something. It's not even barely enough for a pizza, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so live streaming is a, f if people do it for fun, we spent, years building our curriculum and then we spent 18 months doing prototype live stream testing before we could figure it out and then, during the time i was trying to figure out like well should we do it or should i get some help so i call like jesse barnum and he's like oh you mean you're gonna do like a video every day and basically a one-hour video every day is like doing a devcon presentation every day hmm. for the rest of your life it's hmm. not just and people go well you know they, they think like well i could do that too right okay so you're gonna do it every day Next week and the week after that and the week after that, you have a sustained effort to do that. And people realize that I'd rather be working on a on a paid project for a customer and making money than working basically for nothing or for free uh, doing a live stream during the day. Because it's not just the hour, it's the prep work that goes into the broadcast in advance and then any cleanup that goes on after the fact. Um it's just, a, it's a, it's a ton of work. And, um, I remember Jesse being scared about that. Like it was like, uh, I can't be part of that. Not only no, but hell no. Right. And I was, I thought it was funny because it was like, wow, DevCon every day. I hadn't thought of it like that. And, and obviously DevCon, I think there's a little bit higher level of polish, but basically you have to be able to present. And of course I got Nick Hunter who helps me. I got Christian Olson who helps me. I got Calvin, a couple people in my company who are reasonably entertaining individuals, but you have to be able to entertain people, provide value to them, 
at the same time, right? Um, and not make it boring, right? It's such a, a, a tricky combination. And even when you wake up in the morning and you're scheduled to do it, and you're like, oh, I don't feel like doing it, right? But you can't because it's, you know, you kind of kind of have this commitment to, to deliver it every day. And and so, yeah, I we've tried to figure out how to make it make money, um, which it doesn't really do. And uh, so that's kind of part of an evolving process. But we started in March um, and we took a break, I think, for a week and a half at Christmas. And then we started back up this last Monday. Um, and so that's kind of part of the thing, right? So it's, it's you know, what do you do with it? So, and of course, then we start off, people like, oh, you should do, uh, ba basically it was Google. What was Google's um, social networking? What was it called? The Google, they had their social network that, that, that couldn't Google compete. Google, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, oh, you've got to like stream through there. No, we're not going to do that. Okay, we're going to stream through YouTube. Okay, we try that. Uh, that kind of works mostly. Oh, we're going to stream through Twitch because it's a really nice platform, but the gamers kind of use it. So it's like when a, it's like when the old guys show up and, and misuse their gaming technology. <laughs> and yeah. so and it's like, well, would you like to do a raid? Right. Well, I don't even know what the hell a raid is. Apparently, when a bunch of people, one channel go and attack another channel or something like that, I guess. Yep. I don't know. Yep. And I'm like, dude, if someone raids me, I'm going to start shooting. Right. You know, we, no, this is this is FileMaker. This is this is serious <laughs> stuff. We're not raiding someone. Right. So. So that so it's weird using a gaming platform, and I got all these people on there. A lot of them are a lot older than me. I got a bunch of seventy-year-olds using uh, <laughs> Twitch. Twitch. It's wild. And so then, so then, so then I got the twenty-year-olds coming. They're like, "Well, we're not going to take you seriously and use Discord." So, so now what we do is we we don't simulcast, we triple cast, or whatever you want to call. We, so we're broadcasting on three high-definition streams simultaneously to YouTube, Twitch, and Discord. Um, and I and people were like, oh, well, you can combine. Then I'm thinking like, well, you get questions coming in all different platforms. You can combine these together. Oh, we'll, we'll spend a week coding an API to talk to all three and do this thing. I'm like, eh, no. So I just have a big screen on the side. So whenever we do a broadcast, we have to pay a production engineer to run the broadcast and to monitor all the questions coming in on all these different threads, all these like live threads. And then make sure those questions get back to the presenter and the presenter answers them or the maybe the production engineer can jump in on the call and ask, ask the questions on behalf of the person. And so every time we do the broadcast, there's at least two full-time staff that are working, at least two, that are working to make that happen. So hmm. it's... Yeah, it's uh, a big production. That's Yeah. And you generally get about, if you were to guess on an average day, about how many people will be watching. Well, it keeps growing. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're on a given day, we'll have live people, 60 or 70 live people. And then over the course of the next week, because these are all recorded and they get auto automatically posted to, you know, uh, YouTube. And then we cross post to Vimeo. There'll be another 500 people watch over the course of the week. So we have, you know, 500, 600 people in the first week watch it, which is not bad for, fi for FileMaker. If you're doing League of Legends or some gaming thing, pfft, that's very sad. But for yeah. FileMaker, that's not not bad. No, I'd say that's really good. Hey, Richard, uh, how, for people who aren't familiar with it, how do they get to your live stream? What is there a URL or how do they get there? Yeah, you just go to fmtraining.tv and what will happen is that uh, there'll be links there that they can click on. Uh, when, it, when it changes to one o'clock, the links will go live or we can send them an email. Uh, if they sign up, they get a reminder email uh, from our system. Uh, it reminds them to come to the broadcast. But if you go to FM, uh, if you go to uh, if you want to watch it on Twitch, you go to twitch.tv forward slash 
uh, FM training, I think is what it is. I believe that to be the case. And so, but it's all there. If you go to fmtraining.tv, our website, uh, and then hit the live button on the left, top left, you'll see the upcoming schedule and you'll see links. And yeah. Things like that. I would say 60 is great, but you've been doing it for a while. I mean, it wasn't 60 when you first did your episodes, I'm sure. No, no. And then there'd be like times when <clears throat> like we'll do the server worldwide server replication, like a five day uh, run part, you know, one, start on Monday and end on Friday. And we'll have, we had, well, we broke the server at one point, the discord server. So it was 150 people live and then a lot more than that. Cause he said, start having all the, the more senior people who normally won't show up because they already know most of the content, right? I mean, let's be, let's be real. Lexi Folger, who works, uh, used to work at Claris, now works at Apple doing FileMaker projects for Apple. She pretty much knows everything, right? For the most part. She's a very established senior engineer. She'll show up if it's a really advanced topic We and the, the, the num numbers go up. But I mean, I don't plan on selling anything to Lexi at all. She's there to collect information. It actually, at the end of the day, helps the FileMaker platform as a whole much more than it helps me. I have, there's no right. doubt about that, right? There's, there's, there's people uh, who I will never talk to, will never send me a dollar, who are out there using the FileMaker platform because of this kind of stuff, right? And so, you've always been passionate about the platform and promoting it for the good of the platform, not for the good of your own company. Well, if I want to do the good of my company, I wouldn't be doing a live stream, right? Because it's, uh, I, 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 it, it financially, it doesn't work on your, uh, yeah, the accounting doesn't add up on it. It's just, uh, it's, it runs a deficit. I, I would, I would disagree with that, Richard. I think that it's hard to tell where a client came from, where a training opportunity came from, because it's not straight. You know, we have a marketing plan and, and they entered this code and we know exactly where they came from. Where we're at. I think that this indirect helping of the community pays off because I based my entire career off of it and it has paid off. So I think that you doing this live streaming thing, even though you don't get any direct dollars, first of all, I think it's great that you're doing it. I love it helping people out, but I think you ultimately in the long run, well, do yeah, make I'm sure there, I mean, I'm not out of that. business, so let's be clear about that. That being said, we're not getting rich. Um, and, 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 it, and it's cause cause you go to Claris and you're like, Hey, can we have a conversation about, like the direction you guys are going or something so we can communicate this out to the masses. And they're like, eh, we're not going to talk to you. Like, why is that? Uh, well, you know, if we have to, if they, this is really what they tell me. If they, if we talk to you, then we have to talk to everyone who does video live streaming. I'm like, uh, okay, well, just invite all the people to do videos. Uh, and then, well, then, then, then they'll say, then what happens, they'll say, um, uh, well, you know, justify how we're going to make money by us doing this. I'm like, okay. So, so it's, it's hard to have conversations with companies and, and, and corporations about this, uh, cause they get to remind you that there's no direct linkage. Right. So like you said, John Mark, it, it I'm it's still in business. We're both still in business, but you know, <laughs> what percentage of that is this versus something else? There's no way to quantify it. And then is it worth the effort then Richard? I don't know. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I, I'm being honest. Is it worth the effort? There's days where I really like doing it. And there's days where, and I got people misbehaving. I got a moder a couple moderators in there that are volunteer moderators and they have to put the beat down on people because they're, we're talking about what is a relationship. And I got a couple guys who all they want to do is talk about the most advanced way they can screw Jason together right. and make something. Right. And I'm like, like, Hey, that's not the topic today. Right. So then I have the moderator, I have to put them in timeout. Right. Literally. It's like romper room, a bunch of kindergartners run wild. Yeah. Right. So. 
I think that that one of the things that that keeps me in business is passion. And what I'm currently passionate about is my philosophy of FileMaker blog. And you're currently really passionate about live streaming, which you got to have some of that in your work. It, it adds spice to your life. It adds meaning to your life. And I think that's a very important lesson for people. It's not all just about the money. And, you know, you brought up Elon Musk and Steve Jobs. These guys don't care about money. They're they're passionate about doing something. And while we're doing it on a very much smaller scale, that's what we're doing. And it, and it really makes me, uh, you know, eager to wake up in the morning and do something. I would prefer to write an article on my blog than anything else right now. Yeah, and that, and that's very valuable to the FileMaker platform, and uh, I would award you a gold star for doing that. Um, as, it, it's really great, and the fact that you can be you gain personal satisfaction from it at the same time is awesome. That's really why people come to the FileMaker platform. They build a solution, but they they get success and they have personal satisfactions. Why the platform is so? Yeah, and I know that we invest. I mean, we hired a full time person just to help us do one. YouTube a week and selected courses. But if anyone thinks that we're making money doing that, uh, they would be wrong. I mean, it's an absolute money losing proposition, 100%. Well, every, everything we do, Mark, in terms of training and disseminating knowledge, really never makes money. I mean, you know, you can charge for it, you can give it away, but you're not going to make money from it significantly. Yeah, it, it's 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 hard to track it back. I mean, clearly money's going somewhere, and and it helps the platform. Um, it's just it's like like I said, I kind of you know, part of me is like, we'll do it because it's the right thing to do, right? And then the other half of me is like, the accounting justification side of the department, which is, hey, justify this. I think one time, the last time we did the numbers on it, for every dollar I spend, we can directly reattribute back sixty cents. So that's you know, that's I mean, not bad, most, actually, right? Well, I guess, yeah. I, I the, the, we're doing a long time, and you start to see that. But if you're a brand new person uh, trying to get into this, and you're trying to build that, it's going to be, it'll be ten cents for the on the dollar, right? And it, and if and if you're trying to get rich in the world, that's not the way you do it. So, waking up and having a great job is sometimes counter to being the most wealthy individual in your part of town. But isn't isn't that why we all do what we do? Because we do love working with FileMaker. We love the satisfaction. We love the uh, we love the learning curve. We love the process that we can get new knowledge on a daily basis. I mean, even after all these years, we're all learning stuff on a daily basis. And being able to share that knowledge um, is the most satisfying thing I do. And I don't make any money out of it, but I put out a lot of content and I do it because I love to share the stuff and it's and I think that that's really a, a better way to look at life is not focus on money all the time just focus on being a contributor and I've heard from people that are brand new to the platform and or companies that are considering partnership 
sometimes I get a chance to talk to those people and, you know, talk to them about what it, what it's like to be a Claris partner and things like that. And uh, they're often surprised and enthusiastic about, wow, you know, boy, I had a, just a little bit of involvement with the community and the forums. And I can't believe how generous this community is and how everyone wants to give their right hand to help. And they said, I don't normally see that in a technology community in to this level. So, yeah, it, it's a function of a lot of the people and we could spend a lot of time on this, but the, the people who are doing this are generally content creators. These are people who are generally artists in some capacity. We, you know, I'm sure you folks have talked about that before, but they, they, they are people who, you know, they do art, they play an instrument, such a common thing. There's a common thread with a lot of the developers um, and, and even the ones that are not artists, but they, the artists find a way of, of being, listen, let's be very clear. If I, I have a couple of musicians and stuff that are in, that work for me and I go, well, aren't you getting rich and famous yet? I had a guy who was touring with uh, Bon Jovi or something, whatever he was doing. He's like, oh yeah, it was a lot of fun. But we didn't make any money. So our starving artist is a real thing. FileMaker allows an artist to cr creatively express themselves and make money and not go broke at the same time. And that's the big thing, right? How would you like to be an artist and not be broke? Come to FileMaker. There's another ad campaign. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so um, we've made it through all the topics here on the podcast, except one, which is lean design. And I don't know if that's a good way to end, but um, what is lean design? This is a term that I've, I've heard of low code. Is that different than lean design, Richard? Yeah, no, it's uh, low code is an interesting thing. It's uh, I think it's more of a um, drag and drop. I mean, low code is, is, is a pitch by people who want to say drag and drop. Uh, and then what they don't tell you is that, by the way, you're going to be pretty limited uh, if all you can do is drag and drop in life, right? You can only do so much with drag and drop. So um, lean. if you go back, to, I was talking about this progression of learning a little bit earlier. So we talked about a beginning person. It's in between beginning intermediate where they're starting to share. They have to worry about security. Then they get the intermediate. So intermediate um, in the way we write about it, it means a lot of things, but from a performance perspective, because lean design is mostly about performance, right? If, if, if you didn't have to worry about the internet and you only had to run a file on your local computer, lean design is much less of an issue. So lean design is really about high performance. And so at the intermediate level, which is a great level for people to get to, they basically have abstracted out all the calculations from everywhere in FileMaker and they're managing it with scripts in, and that are precisely controlled. So they're not auto intercalculate. Well, there are not uh, calculation fields, stored and unstored, running, summary fields running wild, all the things that will kill performance. So they've got to, they've jumped the performance up to a very high level. They're writing scripts. Um, uh, even some things that you would say, well, that may not be the fastest way to do it. But if you tell them all your calculations should be in the script, somewhere in a script, in the script workspace, it's a simple training, uh, vi a simple training thing to do. Now, you know that, for example, if you write, if you need to loop through a bunch of records, writing a script that says loop and then do a bunch of stuff and in loop, that may not be the fastest way of addressing all those records. Well, an advanced developer, amongst other things, will start to learn the idiosyncrasies about the FileMaker platform, and those idiosyncrasies are custom functions are way faster for an equivalent calculation. Um, auto enter calculations. And so there's these areas where you can go back to that 
it's 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 specific to FileMaker. It's an idiosyncrasy of FileMaker. Um, and as you start to learn what those idiosyncrasies are, you can take the things that you had in your scripts and move them to those areas to derive additional performance. And so you're building lean, right? It's not really necessarily less code, although frequently less code is involved, right? Um, but it's the idea of taking the performance beyond intermediate, um, which is a whole performance improvement from above beginner, right? So beginner, we don't care about performance. We don't want it to work. Intermediate or uh, this middle stage is, oh, pe five people or 20 or 30 people are using it. I got to make it work on the internet. Oh, I need a security code, put that in there. Um, and of course, everyone initially is sharing the same username and password, all the stupid things that go on. And then as they progress beyond that to advance, then we're going to take them to the next step, which is lean design. And that's really kind of Nick Hunter's hallmark kind of thing that he puts out. But uh, but he worked at, at Claris uh, for many years, and he went to many uh, user. It's partially user interface, but it's also code specific. And so that's his thing. He was there. Um, he finally got into a big tussle with a VP over there. Told him, to, you know, he said, "You can't do it this way." He was passionate, right? Very passionate, and the VP um, <clears throat> didn't appreciate the level of passion. And so Nick came to work for me after getting bounced out on his head, right? So one of those sort of things. So Great story. You know, the, the lean design topic, now that you've defined it, is really a hot topic. I can't think of a podcast where we haven't talked about so far, at some point or another, performance, and there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. There's too many ways to do it, but one way is going to yield more performance than the other. It, it is a hot topic. People call it different things, but Darren Terry talked about, you know, this, that, and the other, and this had to do with performance and how you build your layouts and scripts and summary fields. This is the topic that you go to once you understand the basics of FileMaker. Then it's an understanding of, it's one of those things. It's a moment to learn and a lifetime to master. Uh, yeah, yeah, it never finishes. For example, FileMaker Server 19.1 behaves one way. FileMaker Server 19.2 or whatever that the version in there, it's starting to uh, try to do server-side sorting for you, except that it's not super efficient. So by them injecting that into the conversation, that changed how you might do certain PSOS or local side activities. And then, of course, Claire says, yeah, we're still refining it, so it's probably going to change again. So as you said, Mark, you're learning. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, we're going to be learning all the time because the, the things that make it work are going to continually change and be updated by Claris. Yeah, and they're going to need people like us and the community to figure it out. And um, actually, that gets quite interesting for me and probably for you guys too. Well, yeah, I'm trying to keep up with, you know, what's the best. I, I, I was trying to give people instructions or guidance on the best way of interacting and sorting on server. And right now I'm not documenting or writing it, certainly in a book. Because it's it's going to change. It's supposed to change. Uh, Clay Mackle, one of the engineers at Clara, said, yeah, we're continually revising our formula about how, how this works, right? Uh, when the server-side sort engages and how that interacts. Because it can lead you to slower performance, right? Um, uh, just because, yeah. It's, it's a, under certain circumstances. Yeah, yeah, under certain circumstances. And then we could spend hours talking about that. So, yeah. Right. I've got, I've got an interesting point to make, I think, about this whole thing. Hopefully, we'll see. Um, I find it interesting, you know, when I started my FileMaker career, um, which I essentially, you know, when I started working for Claris and then I started my databasepros.com website, the reason I started it was because there were so many things that FileMaker couldn't do. You would, uh, I remember the age old trick of hiding 
uh, objects, which of course we have an eye to object feature, but people don't know. We used to have to use a, a relationship, a one row portal and a calculation to do stuff like that. And it worked pretty well. Um, but the, the way the market's changed now it, it bringing it back to what you guys are talking about, the lean design, it's more about that because there's not very many things that FileMaker can't do easily now. Now it's about making those same solutions perform really well. Um, and I think this lean design thing is is really what people need to be concentrating on these days. Absolutely, yeah. So it, it does a lot more. Of course, you always find someone who wants like a horizontal portal and it doesn't do that. So you have to, <clears throat> then we have these arguments on the live stream and I, I have people yelling, it's a hack. It's not, a, and then we, Nick arguing it's not a hack back. And, and so, yeah, so it's it, learning the lean design and then knowing where to stick the hacks in, right? Like the one row portal hack, right? <laughs> right, to solve a problem that you can't get there otherwise, right? Um, I don't know. It's, I'm, a, I'm excited about it. I, I want to go use it, and I'm stuck on a live stream with you guys. Exactly. <laughs> um, this has been a great conversation here, Richard. I'm so happy that you joined us uh, for this podcast. Yeah, well, I'm glad. And I just want people to know that when you get senior developers and they start complaining, just make sure you ask them, well, do you like FileMaker? And they, they love FileMaker. They love, they love where it's going. They love what it's doing. Of course, <clears throat> being an armchair quarterback, you know, about how we would do it differently and better if we were like in charge, right? It's all, it's all, it's all uh, locker room chat talk and, and, and we know nothing, right? So, you know. No, I think that's a really valid point. All of us here love the, the FileMaker platform, love Claris. We, we're just talking about what ifs and what could be's and, hey, if I was running it, that, that's all this is about. This is just, a, 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 you know, just us going through the motions of having an interesting conversation about what FileMaker is and what it could be. And, and it, I, I find it fascinating. Absolutely. Personally. Yeah. And it's, it's also therapeutic to uh, vent once in a while. So I, I call, I have the speed dial for I'm pissed off and it goes to Mark's uh, cell phone. So yeah. So, <laughs> I call him and vent at him and say, you know, so, yeah, anyway, so. exactly. I have that same number. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's right, Michael. I'm here for you too. <laughs> I used to have that number, but Mark changed it. Yeah, well, there, there's there's well, another business model, myfilemakertherapy.com, right? Yeah, yeah, there you go. I love it. Call, call us to complain. It's only a hundred dollars an hour, no problem. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool, uh, great, excellent, guys. You've been listening to Fireside FileMaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.